Well, that was a rough week. <laughs> As we said it would be at the end of last week's episode. Yeah. Uh, true to form. Let's just say that. It rained a lot. It could have been worse, certainly. The typhoon went a little bit further south than expected and spared us the high winds. So we just got uh, rain done. Yeah, but apparently Tokyo got hit a bit with the uh, the high winds. And yeah. um, it stopped the uh, the bullet train, the high-speed train. Uh, so we didn't have yeah. many people visiting in the Kansai area in Kyoto and Osaka this weekend. You can actually so. walk around without bumping into tourists. It's kind of nice for a change, yeah. Yeah, in Kyoto there are a lot of tourists. You know, now that uh, tourism has opened again. Yeah. It never used to be like this. There are always tourists here, but I mean, never so many. It's really wall-to-wall -wall people now. Almost, yeah. uh, you know, bursting at the seams right before uh, Corona. And right. <laughs> and then they all disappeared, which was nice for a while. Yeah. And, uh, well, now they're all back, except for the Chinese group tours. But I'm oh, sure boy. they'll be returning Once soon. they're back, because uh, they... they uh, they take up a lot of space in, yeah. in this very narrow area. So, because uh, there are a lot of them, they, they tend to follow this one person around. Yeah. They, they, they don't travel in like threes or fours. They, they go in groups of 20 or 30. Anyway, during all that rain, we could mm. just stay inside and listen to all this wonderful brass music. Which is what I did. Yeah. yeah that we've got to uh, share with you tonight. I think you're going to find this uh, pretty interesting. There's a real big variety and some unusual pieces you don't usually hear, both yeah, in classical. Yeah, it was an unusual week that way. Yeah, There's a lot of new music. And we have a great jazz record, too, that I'm really looking forward to hearing what you have to say about oh, it, because okay. we didn't talk about it this week much. Yeah, it's a really yeah. unique, and it's a debut as well. And interestingly, in both your classical picks and in my jazz picks, there's a trombone in the middle yeah. recording. Yeah. So we were thinking about calling this episode bone sandwich <laughs> yeah that there's the meaning the trombone yeah. sandwich that is the trombone uh, album sandwich between the two trumpet ones or at least in my case or valves and slides maybe bone sandwiches are because <laughs> it's the only chance we're gonna have to do that so that's true save bones and slides for another one in yeah time. so let's yeah. go with that so we got a bone in the middle of each one in our usual selection of six recordings and now you can yeah. find the information and links for all of those in the episode description. There's Spotify there, there's Apple Music, or you can get all the music in one place on the full episode playlist that's on Deezer, our favorite CD quality streaming mm. platform. You can also listen to the podcast there as well. Now, if you don't see the full description or the recording list and links aren't clear on whatever app or platform you listen to us on, you can always come over to our host site. That's podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com. Everything's easy to follow there. If you enjoy the podcast, please do subscribe or follow wherever you listen to us. Tell a friend if you've got any music-loving friends. Help us grow our audience. And if you take a moment to give us a ranking, write a short review, that also helps us get listed in the recommendations. And then we can find more listeners that way. Come on over, follow us on Facebook as well. We've got a page there. We'll put up some extra info and new releases that come out throughout the week that we may or may not get to on an episode. So if you want something to listen to new and fresh every day, you can come over there, leave a message and a comment as well. Or if you'd like to contact us directly with any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is adultmusicpodcast. That's all one word at gmail.com. We'd also like to recommend another podcast that's called Same Difference, Two Jazz Fans, One Jazz Standard. It actually complements our podcast pretty well. We do strictly new releases. Often there's some standards in the uh, jazz recordings, but uh, that's what they focus on mainly, uh, going through different versions of one jazz standard in each episode. 
It's a bi-weekly podcast, Johnny Valenzuela and Tony Habra, and they play little snippets of each version, and they discuss the history of the original and what they like and don't like, and they've got a new episode coming out tomorrow. Yeah. Can I just give a little English lesson here? Um, you use the word bi-weekly correctly, which means once every two weeks. But right. people now will say bi-weekly to mean twice a week, which is not right. That would be semi-weekly. Oh, right. But yeah. because it's so often used, bi-weekly, it has both meanings now, which means it really has no meaning. Because right. if somebody says something is bi-weekly, you don't know if it's um, every two weeks or twice a week now because they've uh, added that new meaning because everybody says it. By the way, talking about the same difference podcast, they actually wrote to us recently because we're, yeah. we're kind of having a back and forth with them. They're really nice guys. And they gave us this nice compliment where they said uh, in the email, they said, well, maybe they said this on the show. I don't remember where I, whether I heard this or read this, but they said, um, you know, they do six um, albums a week. I don't, you know, every week. I don't know how they do it. It's just kind of saying, wow, these guys are really hardworking. But the thing is, when I heard or read that, I don't remember which one it is. I kind of had the effect of, you know, that story about the centipede where he's asked, like, which, which, when you do your dance, which leg do you move first? And... <laughs> He tries to think about it, and then he can't do it anymore. Right. That started happening to me. I'm like, oh, how do we do this? <laughs> it's like, now I'm thinking about it. <laughs> I wonder if we can continue. <laughs> sometimes I don't know how I'm going to make it, and uh, yeah. sometimes uh, Mrs. Russ isn't too happy about it either. So. Oh, really? Oh, boy. Yeah. There's, there's uh, things are heating up here. It is work to do. It's fun, but I mean, it's what's work, yeah. too. You know? I, don't, I wouldn't consider it work uh, to do fun a work. podcast about something that you like, but what yeah. we do takes a lot of preparation. But but she's generally very supportive of the podcast. Oh sure. So yeah, yeah. She, yeah. Mrs. It's Russ there. The, she's it's the time factor. Yeah, it's a lot of music to be listening to. I yeah. mean, I think we'd be listening to it anyway, but not necessarily in the way that we're doing it right. now. Right. But you know, and especially attentively. Like I'll say, oh, tonight I can't do this because I'd have to pay attention. And sometimes I'll just put music on where I'm just not paying attention yeah. to it, and it's just kind of yeah. You know, There's different levels. It. But I do have to say, and I'm going to point out that later mm -hmm. in this podcast, that some very interesting details that may have slipped by me, even my normally focused listening, <laughs> have mm -hmm. become really interesting recently. So, yeah. uh, you know, when you're really focusing on everything that you hear, it's a, another level of listening to music. So, yeah, it's a very yeah. uh, enlightening experience. And we hope that listeners get something out of that and find some music they wouldn't have come across otherwise. One thing, too, when you start, like, writing about what you're hearing and trying to describe it even to yourself like i i use a lot of words that i wouldn't use on the podcast just because they they give me you know they they kind of signal the kind of sound that i'm hearing right that other people wouldn't necessarily understand it's just my own personal vocabulary but once you start like labeling music with a certain you know or a sound with a certain label you start kind of noticing how often it comes up in like exactly. other music as well it's yeah. really interesting yeah I notice I keep using mm -hmm. the same expressions, you know, like yeah. clicky grooves and yeah. <laughs> all kinds of things like that. Oh, I have so. some really funny ones too that yeah. I'd be embarrassed to talk about. But <laughs> anyway. Yeah. But before we uh, get into the program, unfortunately, we do have a. Oh, the, the musical death. We, we just, uh, here we were sailing through the week. It was really sad. And yeah. we uh, learned of the, uh, the death of a great classical composer. And we definitely have to play the Dies Ide yes. theme for this one. Let me get up to the uh, piano here. And I'm, I'm sad. Are you sad after hearing that? Yes. Yeah, you should be. Anyway, the great Finnish composer, Kaya Sadiaho, died at the age of 70. Um, mm. Just uh, 
well, we're recording on June 4th, so two days ago on June 2nd. And she had had uh, cancer for quite a while, I think, and she finally, sadly, died of it. Oh. It's a real loss as she, she first of all, a woman composer, was one of the great composers, you know, man or woman. She kind of transcends um, this whole idea of, oh, women composers or Finnish composers, you know. Mm. She doesn't really even sound Finnish. We'll get to that in a minute. She really was one of the great composers of the late 20th and early 21st century because she had her own sound world. And it doesn't sound particularly like when you listen to, say, someone like Sibelius, his music sounds like him, but it also sounds Finnish. So he had both. Right. Okay. Now, but her music sounds like her. And it doesn't sound Finnish and it doesn't sound French either, which is where she lived. But you can kind of hear, hear that a lot of it comes from. French ideas about music because it's um, very heavily timbrely based. She uses a wide range of like orchestral okay. colors in her works, and that's really the way to start to understand them is is by just listening to the sound it makes, as opposed to just trying to follow lines and things like that because there really aren't any. Uh, it's really just sounds like placed in certain mm. areas. She was one of those uh, composers, like I said, that transcended labels of nationality or sex. You just think of her as a great composer. Uh, one booklet note I read about her music said that it was replete with the strangeness of being. And uh, hmm. it's a good one for you. Yeah. Yeah. Good one for me because I'm really into these sort of <laughs> spiritual things, the pursuit of like uh, transcend, you know, Buddhist transcendence or, you know, Christian like transcendence too. Right. And I relate more and more to that idea as I get older too. So she's really a good um, composer to be listening to for that. Recurring topics in her work are light, space, wandering, searching, dreams, and the processes of the human body. Hmm. Her music hmm. explores modes of experience that language cannot describe. Again, this is the kind of thing that drives me into things like Buddhism or what, what would you call the, the Christianity, the mystical Christianity, okay? And in our age, uh, where language is being so badly corrupted, uh, music like this might be our only shelter. So you might want to check it out. It is, however, very challenging. I mean... How could it not be if it's trying to uh, get into places that language can't describe? If, you, if right. you're trying to go there, there's really not much to hold on to. And you just have to just let yourself go and go with it. It's not particularly beautiful, but it's like enchanting. You know, it can get into hmm. really dark places too. But it, it does enchant at times too. It's not the kind of music that the word beautiful can really be hung on. Um, although people might think of it as beautiful. Anyway, she left us uh, just when we needed her most. But her music thankfully remains... And in fact, uh, there's a new album of her work coming on the Beast label on July 7th. And uh, we'll try to hear that for the podcast. Right now, they've only got it up as a download. But um, if there's going to be a CD, I'm probably going to look for that because I bet it'll be an SACD. It benefits her music to have like the best kind of sound reproduction possible mm. because it's very timbrely based, as I said. So in, in a way, she doesn't really sound particularly finished, but um, French uh, people wouldn't consider her to, her to be French either. She doesn't sound like a French composer. But um, she lived in France for a long time, and I think she picked up a lot of those like ideas about timbre right. uh, from being maybe from being there. If she studied there, I don't know. But her music is uniquely her own. It's it's really unique in the world. And I'm sorry to say to hear that there won't be any more of it coming because mm -hmm. 70 years old, she could have kept going for another 10, 20 years. Right. Composers don't really stop composing, although Sibelius did, but he didn't have to. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> rest in peace, Kaya Sadiaho. All right, break out the horns, Mike. All right, here we go. Speaking of uh, orchestral color, we're getting a brassy color here. I don't know. In classical music, um, 
Brass kind of makes me think of Christmas, and here we are <laughs> heading oh, into yeah. summer. Uh, <laughs> but uh, these 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 albums didn't make me think of Christmas at all. Really, they were kind of odd in a little mm. bit. The first one was pretty interesting. It was an interesting concept, Casta Diva, which people may know as a very famous uh, opera aria. And um, you're on the right track if you pick that up, because this uh, album is subtitled "Operatic Arias Transcribed for Trumpet." Hmm. How about that? You get to hear all the opera without the words. And without yeah. the vocals, too. Yeah, without the sopranos. <laughs> and without the sopranos. <laughs> the trumpet is played by Matilda Lloyd, who is 28 years old this year. I don't know when her birthday is, but uh, she's very young. The uh, Britain Symphonia accompanies her, conducted by Rumon Gamba. And this is on the Chandos label. It's an SACD. Now, these are all pretty familiar, like bel canto arias. They're all Italian, I think. Well, they all have... They all at least bounce mm. off of um, uh, arias from the bel canto era. Now, what this is all about, bel canto is a, is about what it means: beautiful singing. So you have these like long legato, f you know, flowing lines of uh, melody, and uh, the the heavy hitters there were Bellini, especially, and uh, Donizetti, and we get a, we get some others as well, and we get those two uh, in abundance. Yes, on this album. Now the thing is, they were close to the classical era, so they're still you're not in this Puccini era. You know, this post-Wagner era, or like with Verdi and Puccini or some people like that, where arias aren't going to take like a specific form. They're just going to, you know, kind of sound like original compositions all the time. So these have like a bit of a, there, there's some formulaic things in them, despite the gorgeous melodies that uh, they produce. So <laughs> we're going to hear a lot of this, these same types of um, yeah. compositions, even though the melodies are all different. The melody is really what's important here, not the orchestration. Okay, so let's go through this. Um, the first track, uh, we get um, the first two tracks, really. We get uh, works from Saverio Mercadante's opera Zaira, and this is called the first track is called Liete Voci, like light voices. This is part one of Orosmane's Cavatina from Act One, Scene Two, for all of you opera lovers out there. Um, revised in 2021 for solo trumpet and reduced orchestra. By William Foster. He's, he was born in 1994, so he's pretty young himself. Yeah. So he's around 30. So he did a lot of the uh, arranging on this album and uh, revising and things like that. So reduced orchestra. You're not getting the big full orchestra. And this is played on the C trumpet. Uh, Ms. Lloyd will change her trumpet for um, certain tracks. Now, one of the odd things about this is that... Um, Despite the different trumpets that she uses, she gets more or less the same tone on all of them, the same brightness, yeah. except for the um, in one she uses a flugelhorn. You can hear that that's a bit uh, got a little more shade to it, but uh, she she gets this really beautiful bright round sound, and it doesn't really alter very much. That's okay; it's a beautiful sound to listen to. But anyway, let's get, let's go on. First of all, Zaira is an early work of Mercadante's. It's set in medieval Jerusalem, as a lot of operas were. And the opera focuses on the slave girl Zaira, who has been brought up in the harem of the Sultan Orosmane. Hmm. <laughs> oh. Lieta Voci is the entrance area for the Sultan, who is a baritone, uh, with the chorus. So, so the trumpet here is playing a baritone's um, uh, solo. Uh, it opens with declamatory phrases in the voice, after which a lilting cantabile, uh, with prominent woodwind accompaniment, leads into a demanding cabaletta, in which the Sultan expresses his joy. All right, not not the kind of theme you're going to hear in a modern opera, I guess. <laughs> anyway, but uh, these sorts of exotic 
would have been exotic to Europeans at the time, really fascinated people back in the 19th century. Anyway, warmly captured strings open the track. This is a beautiful recording, by the way, I mm. should say, all the way through. Lots, really spacious. I heard this in surround because it's an SACD and I did my five channel listening. Really nice. The trumpet sings out then, and um, at first, I have to say, I was really surprised not to be hearing a voice. I'm just so used to the, uh, the vocals <laughs> in an, in an aria, opera aria, and then you hear the, the trumpet like playing. It's, it really kind of threw me a little bit. The accompaniment is real opera fare, accenting the singer's words, which we don't hear here. Yeah, the orchestra in every one of these pieces, because they're all from the bel canto era, the orchestra is always there for specifically for accompaniment and to accent the singer's words, things like that. They're not really, there's nothing special about the orchestration mm. usually. That doesn't happen until Wagner changes everything, and Verdi to an extent too, because he, um, he set operas as more drama than as music. Although there's music there too. There's some great tunes in his operas too. It's nice to be able to focus on merely the melody, I have to say. The trumpet sound is warmly caught. The piece itself is highly appealing. There are typical changes of musical character during the aria, enabling the singer, in this case the trumpet, to show different moods. Okay, in this era, just like in the classical era, and especially the Baroque era, the whole purpose of the aria was to, uh, for the singer to express the way he or she is feeling in that moment. And this usually has contrasting um, musical sections, so the singer can show some the variety of her voice. For example, her... Um, Maybe she's a mother and her child was killed by someone. So you get, uh, she's sad that her child is dead. So you get this really sad lament. And then like she's angry and wants revenge from the guy who killed her. So you get this really angry section too. I'm not sure what's happening here. There's a lot of joy in this one though. Uh, Lloyd more or less keeps the same beautiful tone throughout. And she shades a bit in quieter parts. But this is a trumpeter that doesn't really change her tone much. Okay, although she does change her instrument. She's always getting this kind of same sort of uh, bright and really lovely tone, I have to say. But I don't know. As, as the album goes on, you kind of you want to hear some shading. Anyway, the second uh, track is Mercadante. Again, same opera. Asi, Questo di Mia Vita. It's part two of Orosmanes Cavatina. And this concluding section of the aria was designed to demonstrate the skills of the original singer, Antonio Tamburini. And this connects with the previous track, has a quicker accompaniment, as the trumpet continues in its front and center melody. Oh yeah, the trumpet is just front and center the entire way, okay, on this album. There's some impressive roulade playing at points in the melody and an impressively emphatic quick phrase ending the piece. Very vocal, really nicely done. All right, so we're off and running. Third uh, track is uh, Vincenzo Bellini, one of the greats of the era. Oh, mia fedeli, ma la solo oime sonio from his opera Beatrice di Tenda from 1833. This is Beatrice's Cavatina from Act 1, Scene 3. And this is played on a D trumpet, probably because we have to go up a little higher. And I suspect she's changing her instruments because of the, um, the roles that she's um, you know, playing here. This is also a uh, reduced orchestra by um, William Foster. This was composed for the legendary soprano Judita Pasta. What a great name. Pasta. <laughs> All right. Uh, she sang the title role in uh, Bellini's La Sonambula, which is a very famous Bellini opera. And Norma, another, those are really his two most famous operas right there. This particular opera, Beatrice di Tenda, is set in medieval Lombardy and centers on the unhappy Beatrice, who's married to Filippo, the Duke of Milan, who is in love with Agnese. And uh, so she's <laughs> she's being neglected. Anyway, in this, her entrance aria, 
Yet Trice laments her unhappiness to her maids. So she comes in and says, Oh, I'm so unhappy. Uh, comparing herself <laughs> to a dying flower and pleading for peace and support from heaven. So she's looking to God for support. It's introduced by High Woodwind, characterized as feminine in the 19th century, the High Woodwinds, and marked by a periodic clarinet accompaniment, the vocal line gradually moving higher and higher as Beatrice plays to heaven for release. I guess she's sad the way the Countess in Mozart's Nozze de Figaro is um, sad because um, you know her, uh, her husband is after um, the woman Figaro wants to marry. Mm. <laughs> Susanna. Okay. Right, anyway. This is a sad theme, opening mostly with the solo trumpet, with occasional chords coming in for accents and harmonic support. The lyrical sadness continues throughout the work, and Lloyd captures the feeling well through her phrasing. One gets the idea that, um, by this point, that she's listened to a lot of opera in her life, because she seems like right at home in this vocal phrasing on the trumpet. Mm. And there's a heartfelt brief cadenza at the end. Yeah, so she fits this really well. I bet she's a big fan of opera. Anyway, the fourth uh, track, Jean-Baptiste Arban. This is Variations on a Cavatina from Bellini's Beatrice di Tenda. This is arranged uh, for trumpet and small orchestra by William Foster, played on the D trumpet. And the music draws on the final section of Beatrice's Act I entrance aria, which I believe we heard above. A la pena in lor piombo. I have no idea where that comes in because we didn't hear the words. But anyway... It's the end of that aria. The variations put the performer through a variety of demanding tests in triplets, repeated notes, scales, and leaps. They also revealed the wide expressive scope of the trumpet. It's piercing tone, suitable for both military heroism and the most tender expressions of intimacy. So, Russ, when you play the trumpet, do you get all the ladies? They all... They used kinda, to. They used to? Okay. See, yeah, I guess so. You can do that intimate sound that she gets here. <laughs> Anyway, the trumpet here shows it a lighter, quieter sound at the beginning, singing out the theme modestly. The first variation has a line with figuration in it, which Lloyd plays expressively. The second variation speeds up even more with 16th notes, very evenly and expressively played. Uh, the third variation features 16th note triplets with rapid repeated notes. It's very fast, very impressive uh, technique here, with light accents placed on the melodic notes too. Really, uh, really nicely done. So for, for trumpet players looking for some technique there, it's, it's really amazing from this 28-year-old uh, trumpeter. Track five, Vincenzo Bellini again. Oh, quante volte from I Capuletti e i Montecchi. So that's the uh, Romeo and Juliet families. Um, that's from 1830. This is uh, number four, Giulietta's Romanza from Act One, Scene Four, played on the C trumpet. All right, Bellini was celebrated. One of the reasons he's really so well loved is for, first of all he died young so he had that romantic kind of you know early death that uh makes people lament what could have been had he lived on but he was celebrated in his lifetime also for his melodic skill uh he had this ability to generate unusually long melodic lines now remember italy is the country of melody okay this is you know it's a very musical language and uh, they take pride in their ability to generate beautiful melodies, as Bellini did. But Bellini could generate long melodic lines constructed out of a series of musical styes. Ah, you know, these <laughs> kind of downward moving things, and he would just link them all together, and it would form this melody. Uh, we hear that skill in this aria, which the delicate harp accompaniment and sinuous vocal line perfectly evoke the character's nocturnal sadness. This is Juliet, okay? 
The stepwise melodic movement depicts the character trapped in grief at her lover's absence, her lover being Romeo. Uh, the harp arpeggio accompaniment at the beginning adds a gentle character to the piece. We hear the stepwise downward melodic line of the trumpet. Those are the sighs. And this is a gorgeous melody all the way through. You know, sighing in melody is is beautiful. It just mm. is. It just makes us, uh, it just takes our heart out, you know? Beautifully and touchingly played. The sadness comes through in the tone and phrasing. Track six. Jean-Baptiste Arban is back with more variations on Bellini's Norma this time. You should know that uh, Arban is the most famous sort of method for trumpet. Ah, so yes, that's right. Yeah, Every trumpet player goes through the huge phone book of technique <laughs> studies, actually for cornet originally. And in the back, there are lots of characteristic studies mm -hmm. and lots of things with opera themes and famous pieces all right. arranged to develop your technical skills. And uh, yeah, so you always end up playing these. I remember finally I did the debutante uh, uh, as a solo recital piece. Uh, so very nice. I think I think the word phone book is actually used in the in the booklet <laughs> note to describe be, yeah. his uh, yeah his his book of studies for the trumpet. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that's the the, the common uh, word used for it by trumpet players. I don't know. I think I have my original. You know, I had bought another copy, but I have the old worn out <laughs> one. It's like shredded into like right. many as they always are pieces. Yeah. No, I also remember like in because uh, I because I went to Boston University and um, uh, the Berkeley School of Music was nearby, and right. uh, so jazz players like always had that uh, fake book. You know, the, oh, the, the jazz fake book. Fake yeah. book. yeah, that was always going around. I had one too. Just to have you know and yeah. it's just like every popular jazz tune you can imagine is in there and just gives you all the chords and well that's good like for that. your standards yeah and yeah. Uh, help you with the structures and things yeah okay well anyway back to Arban yeah, Arba. <laughs> yeah here we go variations on Bellini's Norma um the aria Casta Diva the most famous aria from this um this opera and this is also the um the aria that this um album is named after Oh, he he made this vari these variations in 1864 because Bellini was long dead by then. Hmm. Anyway, Norma's Cavatina from Act One, Scene Four, arranged in 1994 for trumpet and string orchestra by Mikhail Nakaryakov. Um, after an original arrangement, also 1994 for trumpet and piano, the piano part improvised by Alexander Markovich. That's really complicated. And she uses a B flat trumpet here, Matilda Lloyd. So this is the first time we're hearing the B flat trumpet. Which is the normal trumpet, I guess, right? That's the... Well, for concert bands and yeah. playing with wind instruments, yeah. Okay. The orchestra, though? No, orchestra, you'll want to play C or D to match C. all the sharp keys and blend right. with the strings with better intonation. I see. Okay. Yeah, that's right. It would be used in a in a brass band, wouldn't it? I guess mm -hmm. they're all... They can, like, you get the, 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 the fullest sound, I guess, out of it. Anyway, Casta Diva from Bellini's Norma is a prayer to the moon, as fans of this opera know. By the way, Casta is chaste, so mm. it means chaste diva. It's a prayer to the moon sung by the title character Norma upon her entrance in Act One, notable for its long lines that gradually ascend to the soprano's highest register. Of course, you have to have the soprano in her highest register, otherwise the soprano will... <laughs> get really nasty with you if they can't show She'll up. She'll be a diva, yeah. She will be indeed uh, show you the other meaning of diva. As uh, Norma prays for peace, but she's going, you know, so her voice is going up to heaven, basically, uh, before descending to a more earthly lower register. The subsequent cabaletta, ah, bello a me ritorna, is a private plea for her lover, Polione. 
to return. Now showcasing the singer's skills in leaps and inviting further decoration in its second stanza. So the the, the soprano here, they love this role. And this is part mm-hmm. of the reason why, because you get to show like all your technique in this one opening aria. And the, the audience is already at your feet by the end. In this arrangement, Arban takes advantage of the uh, trumpet's entire range, as does Bellini with the uh, soprano's range. The repeated notes and chromatic scales, while adding an unexpectedly playful dimension to the heroic character of the druid priestess, Norma. Highly melodic opening to the lower to mid-range register, and uh, after the initial melody finishes, there's an orchestral interlude. At 2.33, we have either the next section of the aria or the first variation. I really don't know how to think about this, but uh, it's a set of variations, though. It's got a military march quality to it in its rigid rhythm. The trumpet has some figuration within this. At 3.38, more figuration still as the line speeds up. At 4.27, we seem to have 16th note triplets again. The speed is very rapid and features repeated notes on the trumpet. We're actually going to get 32nd notes in in another album that we're going to hear later, (laughs) which is pretty incredible. The line is handled well, uh, again, with accents on the melodic notes. This is actually similar to the approach in the previous set of variations by Arban that we heard in track four. He speeds up as he goes, so he seems to like that structure. There's one more variation that starts slowly and lyrically, though, at the end, and speeds up as it goes, leading to a satisfying climax. Track seven, Luigi Ricci, Tarantella Napoletana, from La Festa di Piedigrotta, from 1852. This is the danza from the Act 3 finale, and it was arranged in 2021 for trumpet and small orchestra by William Foster and played on a C trumpet. All right, now, when I say to you, you know, to sing a famous tarantella to me, what's what are you going to do? You're going to go, that's this work. Yep. <laughs> I had, I never knew what it was. I just thought it was some generic folk song you know that that, that with a tarantella rhythm i think that was our italian explosion theme wasn't it? oh yeah i think it was yeah that's right we used yeah. that and then we exploded yeah, it, it exploded it yeah <laughs> we'll have to do that again if we ever do another yeah. italian episode no 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 but yeah that's this work i didn't know where it came from and okay. now i do because right. of this recording there you go i learned something new this week it took me out of my unhappiness in the rain <laughs> okay Anyway, this is pretty brief at 2 minutes and 32 seconds. The Tarantella melody is the stereotypical one you think of when you think of a Tarantella. And I guess it, yeah, it comes from this opera. Who knew? This is the first time I, well, I guess everybody but me knew because <laughs> I just learned it this week. Anyway, this is the first time I've ever heard it in an orchestral context. It's got some pretty orchestration provided by the arranger. It's more melodic than manic. That's a relief. And at a minute and 46 seconds, the dance picks up speed, however, and gets more manic at the end, as they have to, really. Because the Tarantella was said to be a, um, a, da- a vigorous dance that, because it's named after a spider, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, I think it kind of was supposed to get the, you know, your blood pumping so that the poison would leave your body or something. So you do this really <laughs> fast dance. Anyway, the phrase leading to the end is excitingly fast, and the piece ends with a rush to the last accented note. Uh, Lloyd gets the leaping quality of the melody to spring off its accented notes very well. She plays it really well. She's got a good Italianate feel here. Okay, so anyway, I was really excited by that (laughs) to learn something new. Anyway, track eight, Gioacchino Rossini, who's uh, Rossini. Everybody knows him as the Barber of Seville composer. 
this is an aria a uh, quel giorno on your ramento from semiramide okay i gotta explain who this is this is from 1823 and this is arsace's cavatina from act one scene one arranged uh for trumpet and small orchestra by william foster in 2022 last year hmm. played on the d trumpet okay semiramide is based on voltaire's uh, character semiramis semiramis i guess uh from uh 1748 i guess is the year he published this um book uh, the title character is the mythical queen of assyria and in this scene in the opera the warrior arsace who is a contralto so like a lower woman's voice expresses his love for the princess azema so man he's a warrior but it's a contralto voice i'm kind of wondering about that in an aria that moves from a plaintive opening in the singer's lower register i'm guessing this is a what they call a pants roll well it's like a woman singing like uh, uh, okay. dressing as a man like but it's in a higher range so a woman sings it sort of like uh what's his face from uh little <laughs> <laughs> notes of the vigoro carabino anyway he's, he's supposed to be a boy but if this guy's a warrior i don't know he can't be that young i'll have to listen to the opera Anyway, uh, the aria moves from a plaintive opening in the singer's lower register, which is marked by falling phrases, to a characteristically dazzling conclusion that exhibits the singer's agility and range. Okay, now, if you've heard me say these words a lot of times, yeah, that's what we're hearing again and again, because that's what opera arias do. Right. They uh, show off the uh, soloist technique. And we're hearing these, these same sort of um, techniques over and over again, despite the changing beautiful uh, melodies. This starts out pleasantly and lyrically in the trumpet. The trumpet, again, gets a lot of warmth out of this phrase. Some nice scalar runs are heard in the opening material, and the next section, at a minute and 15 seconds, builds tension as we hear a minor key. A giddier section starts at about the 2 minute 38 second mark in the major key. At 3.30, a more galloping section begins. I'm going to use this word quite a bit, actually. <laughs> galloping rhythms. Um, the trumpet's line is lyrical all the way through, and I like Lloyd's way with the vocal phrasing. She captures the inflection of the voice well on the trumpet. Next, the recently resuscitated composer Pauline Viardot. Now, she was um, really a, a big shot in her time. She was an exceptional mezzo-soprano and successful composer. And uh, she came from a musical family. And she was resuscitated really by uh, Cecilia Bartoli, who was the first to start singing her arias again. And now she's become this sort of icon of... Um, you know, women composers and just great women from the 19th century. So she's got that now. This is a Havanese VWV 1019, written not later than 1880. And this is from her Six Melodies et une Havanese, Varie, a deux voix, for two voices. And this is arranged uh, by William Foster for Trumpet and String Orchestra in 2022, played on the C trumpet. So this uh, work is one of her most frequently performed compositions. The repetitive form allowed for increasingly elaborate vocal decorations. And originally, this was a duet for soprano and alto. That's why it says for two voices. So this arrangement has changed that to the trumpet. There's a soothing nocturnal feel to the opening. The piece has a romantic feel to it with its sighing strings. A variation starts at about a minute and 46 seconds, a little quicker than the beginning, and notier in the trumpet. At 2.46, a more rapid variation starts with more runs in the trumpet to the higher range, and the piece ends with that variation. Track 10, Pauline Viardot again, Chanson de la Pluie from her opera, I guess, Le Dernier Sorcier, the, the Last Sorcerer, VWV 2002, 
Um, this is Stella's song from Act One, Scene Three, arranged for trumpet, small extra by William Foster, played on the C trumpet. The libretto, by the way, for this opera, which we're not hearing the words of here, uh, was written by Ivan Turgenev, you know, the famous uh, Russian writer. I'm pretty sure he was Russian. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Who Viardot was friends with, I guess, because these Russians all hung out in France back in the day. There's still a lot of them there, in fact. It's a fairy tale chamber opera centering on the aging sorcerer Krakamich, I guess. Here, Krakamich's daughter Stella sings of the rain. The aria's lilting melody offset by a staccato accompaniment evocative of falling raindrops. And the piece has a nice sway to the shape of its melody. It's light in the vocal with sensitive orchestration and arranging by William Foster. There's a nice brief solo section for the trumpet just before the end and attractive all the way through, really. It's um, good work. Giochino Rossini, we're back to him on track 11. Prelude Them et Variation for horn and piano. This is actually written for the horn and piano, the French horn in this case. And this was arranged for flugelhorn and string orchestra by William Foster. So we're hearing the flugelhorn here. This was written for the famed uh, horn player Eugène Vivier. The uh, performer is called on like an opera singer to display skills in rapid alternation between legato lines and filigree figuration. Uh, the tension in the melodic line never allowed to slacken. It's got a slow, warm string beginning. The opening melody is gentle with a light sadness and is played in the low end. Lloyd's tone here has a bit of a teardrop in its tone. I think the flugelhorn suits her well, really. At the two-minute mark, the piece is given a momentary rhythmic lift. In the fourth minute, a more lively theme appears, featuring a theme with repeated notes in the flugelhorn. At uh, 6.31, there's a full pause and a new tune starts, forlorn and singing out in the depths of night. In the eighth minute, the theme brightens up again with repeated notes in the trumpet and a few Rossinian quirks in the accompaniment. This is a piece that requires some athleticism, but it's put across without drawing attention to the soloist, who's in service to the material here, so the listener might not notice the pretty amazing thing she's doing. I like the modest tone used throughout, and that, of course, could be a result of the instrument being the flugelhorn. It doesn't really assert its presence as much as like a, a trumpet does. Track 12, we're finally at uh, Gaetano Donizetti, Una Furtiva Lagrima from the opera L'Elisir d'Amore. This is uh, a very famous opera by him. Uh, number 11, Nemorino's Romanza from Act 2, Scene 8, and this is played on the E-flat trumpet, the first time we're hearing this. So Nemorino, who has bought an elixir of love that's really just red wine, uh, to make the wealthy Adina fall in love with him, he's really broke, so he can't get near her. Anyway, it doesn't work, so he signs up for the army and realizes that her sadness at his departure is a sign of her concealed love for him. Uh, here he reflects that the tear she has shed secretly, furtively, furtiva, reveals her affection. Uh, the vocal entry preceded by a poignant bassoon solo that demonstrates Donizetti's skill in using overlooked orchestral instruments for deeply expressive aims. Yes, the bassoon. Uh, starts with uh, harp arpeggios and a bassoon playing a melody. The trumpet then comes in with the same melody, and the bassoon echoes the last two notes of every phrase. The trumpet is especially legato here, shaping this famous melody with all the plaintiveness of an Italian tenor. Get more Donizetti, prelude to Act 2, this is track 13, 13. prelude for, to Act 2 from Don Pasquale from 1843, revised for a trumpet and reduced orchestra by William Foster, played on the B-flat trumpet. This was um, Donizetti's last comic opera. 
And uh, he introduced a newly tragic element to the comic genre here, and this eventually led him to make, write tragic operas. Now, this poignancy is evident to the prelude in Act Two, heard here. The piece showcases the ability of the trumpet to convey a sense of nobility and expressive restraint in a mournful mood. Dramatic strings at the beginning, then we hear the poignant trumpet intro followed by the full theme. It's poignant throughout. The B-flat trumpet is a good match for the tone required of this aria, and Lloyd captures the tone well. And the final track, finally, track 14, Gaetano Donizetti again, Quel guardo il cavaliere from Don Pasquale. This is number four, Norina's Cavatina from Act One, Scene Four, played on the E-flat trumpet and revised again by William Foster for um, reduced orchestra and trumpet. The soprano, Norina, sings this. In the lyrical opening, the soprano reflects on the book that she is reading and which tells how a knight was pierced by love, a knight meaning a medieval knight. After a cry of, ah, ah, Norina then celebrates her own ability to seduce and control men through her charm and capricious <laughs> behavior. <laughs> a skill that I have to say is being lost today. <laughs> the dotted rhythms and vocal flourishes of the movement evoke her playfulness as well as love of performance. Anyway, the finale of the album of gorgeous uh, melodies here, it's hard to say much about the works. They're all straightforward entertainment from the bel canto era. This is another track of beautiful lyrical playing, with Lloyd floating the melody on the undulating accompaniment. A more dramatic tone sounds at the two-minute mark, followed by a happy-go-lucky rhythm and theme, which the trumpet picks up. This is what the notes refer to as a playful theme, by the way. And to introduce the next section, Lloyd uncorks a high note, we get some dramatic statements from the orchestra, then the playful theme returns, and through some solo flourishes, brings us to the end of the piece, and album. The playful theme being her confidence in her seductive ability. <laughs> Norina, that is. Anyway, it's an interesting concept, this album, having um, opera arias from the bel canto era, that era of great vocal lines, played on the trumpet. It's also effective. Uh, the trumpet, it turns out, is very good at evoking the emotion and legato melody of operatic singing. A lot of credit goes to Matilda Lloyd for that. She has a genuine feeling for the music. And one gets the feeling she's been familiar with opera for a while, despite her young age. Her tone throughout varies a bit. She's changing you know, instruments a lot, and uh, I guess she gets more out of certain ones than others. Uh, she can get a sort of veiled tone in parts, but mostly plays with a full glowing tone. Uh, she's admirably versatile and maintains interest throughout the program. Okay, yeah, she does. She has that beautiful tone, but she doesn't really vary the tone much, and... The program itself doesn't vary much. They're all like opera arias. So mm -hmm. it can kind of seem like we're, we're hearing the same sort of piece for a long, long time. There is sensitive accompaniment, though, by the Britain Sinfonia and Rumon Gamba's direction. Uh, the recording is great. Comes up fully in surround, as I've come to expect from Chandos recordings. The trumpet is caught in full glow. It sounds great. Uh, the music itself was the popular music of its day and won't strain your brain. It'll certainly provide smiles to lovers of opera. The album has a lot of uh, appeal. It's a good way to hear these great melodies without hearing them sung by an operatic voice. Uh, the writing is dramatic, fitting for the stage, and that dramatic feel is maintained for the album. So I'd recommend this for those interested in the repertoire or the trumpet. I think you might want to break it up, though, because it does tend to get kind of samey. My take, uh, she has very fine technique and very musical, vocal-like phrasing, which suits this material well. To my ears, her tone's very pleasing, but 
rather compact and centered is how mm. I describe it. And the whole program is very enjoyable, but dealing with the tone side, it, it does lean to the polite side. And that's yeah, really I, the thing for good. me. Well I would wish mm. for a bit more of a ringing tone, a little shine, and maybe, maybe even a little sizzle on some of the opera area climaxes. Yeah. Because you be know, cool. if we had a soprano singing here, There'd be some moments where they would get that vibrato going that hits me right between the eyes. Yeah. And uh, I'd personally... They break your wine glass, you know, yeah, that stuff. <laughs> I'd personally much rather hear that kind of thing on a trumpet. So these are, you know, adaptations. Uh, it's a unique kind of program. Uh, why not let loose a little bit uh, with the trumpet on a unique program like this? So mm -hmm. that's just a stylistic thing that I was wishing for. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. I would have liked a little more variety, to be honest, too. Mm -hmm. And I think you, you hit it on the head by saying that the playing was very polite. It, yes. yeah, that's that's well said because opera singing really isn't polite. It, <laughs> I mean, they um, they really they really go they really swing for the fences, right. <laughs> especially the sopranos when they sing in an opera. Anyway, our next album is um, for the trombone. This is the uh, the trombone sandwich. This is the, the yes. meat in the sandwich. And this album is called... <laughs> and the bone. <laughs> and the bone. Yes. It's the bone in the sandwich. Eh, I guess the dog would like this sandwich, huh? Mm. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, this album is called A La Maniere. It's um, Mark Davidson playing the trombone and Victor Valkov on the piano. And this is on the Bridge Records label, an American label, and they are located in New Rochelle, New York. All right. Yeah, how about that? And uh, the Bridge label, I have had um, a long listening relationship with them. I think I have all of their George Crumb releases. They were releasing mm. like uh, a, a George Crumb series. And they're also, I believe they're still doing this, releasing uh, Paul Ruder's, um, the Danish composer Paul Ruder's series. And I like him too because he, he's a complete maniac. <laughs> he just <laughs> likes, he, the orchestra has to be as gigantic as possible to put his huge ideas across. He actually wrote a, a piece that was about the life of the sun. <laughs> and mm. he, he had a, an orchestra that was about as big as the sun, too, to put that across. <laughs> I really liked it, though. It's really over the top. Anyway, that's a different composer. But let's get to this. Okay, so trombone and piano. Davidson, I, I'll give you a little background here since we don't really know these um, musicians. He began playing the trombone at age 11 within the Plano, Texas School District Music Programs. Went to the University of Texas, got his bachelor's in music education in 2006. Then he went to the Juilliard School and studied with the great Joseph Alessi, who was the uh, trombonist for the uh, New York Philharmonic. And I think he's also the um, the uh, dedicatee of uh, the trombone concerto by uh, Christopher Rouse. I think he was hmm. the first person to play that. Davidson has held posts in many American orchestras and is now on the trombone fac faculty at the University of Utah. So I wanted to give you some facts about him. The, the booklet notes go into, he played with all the great orchestras and yada, yada. <laughs> they're, all, they're all the same like that. But it's important to each of these guys. Valkov, on his, in his um, turn, won the 2012 New Orleans International Piano Competition. Hmm. I didn't even know there was a New Orleans Piano Competition. There you go. And he often appears as a soloist all over the world. I'll just <laughs> cut that paragraph short. And he's also at the University of Utah, where he is assistant professor of the piano. So I guess these two yeah. hooked up there. Yeah, this is a really interesting program. The A la Maniere mm. title turns out to be named after a group of pieces by the contemporary composer Jean-Michel Defay. And I hope I'm saying his name right. I'm pretty, it's F-A-Y-E, and I'm pretty sure it's pronounced that way. Couldn't get a confirmation. Uh, who was born in 1932 and is still with us. So he's uh, 
in his nineties now, I guess. Mm. He's yeah. Boy. And he wrote a bunch of pieces in the style of other composers. Now, if you're a big fan of piano music, uh, Ravel did this twice. He has a, a piece called Alamanier di um, Bordin and Alamanier di uh, Chabrier. So I think uh, Defy might be picking up on that. And he has six of these. The first one is Alamanier de Schumann, written in the year 2000. Defy studied with uh, Nadia Boulanger and Darius Mio. Those are two giants of uh, 20th century music. And uh, this Schumann-inspired work uh, evokes the fiery temperament of Schumann's Floristan persona. Yeah, Schumann kind of split his um, ideas into... He had these two kind of um, personas that would... Mm. Um, who, who were of different romantic temperaments. Actually, Prince did something like this, too. He had a character named Spooky Electric, who was kind of his dark side. <laughs> anyway, so Schumann did that, like, back in the 19th century. The trombone has a long cadenza between the A and B sections. It serves as a commentary on the opening material. And the middle section takes on the character of Floristan's more introspective alter ego, Eusebius. So Floristan and Eusebius. Floristan is the, the maniacal one, the, the passionate one. <laughs> okay. So anyway, we start this with a rippling piano arpeggio, and the trombone sounds great melodically in this over rippling arpeggios. And it's very Schumann-esque. Um, Defy captures this style really well. There's a clear cadence at the 54 second mark and then a long cadenza, the trombone declaiming and heading all the way into its satisfying low end, then climbing out of it by steps. At 2.15, the Eusebius section begins. It's very pretty, gentle, and melodic. The trombone declaiming poetically with curvy, melodic lines. At 3.56, the stormy Floristan section returns, only it's a little less heated this time, and it ends quietly. Next, this might have been our favorite piece mm. on the album, Defy Again, A La Maniere de Debussy, written in 2001. Debussy's music is characterized by pentatonic melodies, high harmonies in thirds with ninths, elevenths, and thirteenths, parallel chords, modal scales, oblique harmonic resolutions in unexpected directions, and uh, this piece has all of those, and those are all of my favorite things in music, and Debussy did them all. <laughs> just, I just love that. This piece is most reminiscent of Debussy's Sweet Bergamasque. Yeah, it, sometimes it actually sounds like it's going to go into Claire de Lune, actually. From the opening arpeggio, we can tell we're in Debussy territory, even without knowing the name of the piece. You could have just start playing this, and you'll just think yeah. it's Debussy. Debussy never wrote for the solo trombone, so it's interesting to hear it mm. in this context, what might have been. The piece seems to be specifically aping Claire de Lune, as I said. It doesn't use the same melody, but the melody has the same contours, and there are some signposts in the phrasing pointing at that work. At about the two-minute mark, there's a section change referencing a different piece. There are different pieces referenced. I couldn't really pull out which ones they were. They didn't really come to mind. And at 310, there's another textural change where we hear uh, Debussy's more chordal approach. There are a lot of changes of section in this piece because he's got to get all that uh, Debussy uh, writing in there, the, the different uh, techniques he used. At four minutes, there's a transition to a new section, which starts at 431, and we're back to Claire de Lune-like figures in the piano, and this section brings us to the end. The third track is Defy again, a la manière de Stravinsky. Hmm. And here, Defy goes for Stravinsky's neo-baroque works of the 1920s and 1930s in his characterization. And the piano trombone timbres recall the concerto for piano and wind instruments. There are syncopations, driving ostinati, and occasional metric shifts. So we start this out with some jarring chords on the piano, 
And Stravinsky's kind of circusy use of the brass um, from his new classical era, neoclassical era, is heard in the trombone. The rhythmic irregularities begin after 40 seconds. A slower, more mysterious section starts at a minute 30. At 2.44, the quicker circusy material is back. And this does ape the fast, slow, fast movement structure of concerto for piano and wind instruments. The trombone throughout these three pieces maintains beautiful tone on each note and has enough flexibility in his phrasing to put across the moods and humor in these works. Uh, listen to the brief glissandos on the trombone in the last minute of this work for an example of that humor. All right, tracks four through six, we get to a work by Ferdinand David, who was around um, in Beethoven's... Well, he sounds a lot like Beethoven, I think, but he was very young. Beethoven died when he was 17. Okay, this is the trombone concertino from 1837. All movements transition without a break in this work. The outer movements share the thematic content, and this gives the three-movement work an ABA feel. So the first movement, Allegro Maestoso, has something pretty amazing in it. On the repeat, we hear the theme, and then we hear the theme repeated, or the, the, the uh, opening theme repeated. Davison goes into the upper range of the trombone for the second theme, which is a real challenge and not required by the score. Right. Um, but it gives a lot of um, sort of um, interest to the work. And the use of the range gives the work a soaring quality. Mm. Indeed, it does. So there's a pretty gentle opening by the solo piano, quietly and modestly played. The work is in the late classical sound world with the line being placed in the foreground. As in a classical work, I was thinking more Mozart, but then there's an outburst just before the minute mark, and we're in the Romantic era. But Valkov actually plays this as classically as possible with very discreet pedal. So it doesn't really sound like a Romantic work with a blurred kind of harmony or things like that. We don't hear the trombone's entry until the minute and 32nd mark where he plays strong, emphatic lines. I like the way Davidson softens his tone as he decrescendos to pianissimi from fortissimi. There's some impressive staccato playing too. The piece has some Beethoven elements in it, especially with sudden changes of dynamic and in the tension building chords at the five minute mark and beyond. The second movement is marked uh, Marcia Funebre. This kind of registers a B section really in this work. This um, movement was actually performed at uh, David's own funeral. Huh. But it doesn't sound funereal to me, at least not in this performance. There's a false cadence that leads into the movement, and the first chord is the end of that false cadence. The trombone comes in after a piano intro that goes through the chord pattern. The duo plays this with a light touch, and even a lightly comic one in some instances, so it doesn't sound like a really serious kind of funeral march to me. Some of the piano's sudden upward ornamentals come across as tongue-in-cheek, at the two-minute mark, a more tranquil, sad middle movement begins. Full-on bass note from the trombone is heard at uh, 3 minute 21 seconds, and this registers very well on the recording. There's a nicely taken false cadence at 3.52. This funeral march has too light a touch for an actual funeral. I like it, though. I like this performance mm. of it. And David's own funeral mustn't have been so heavy in feeling, <laughs> although I doubt it was played this way quite right. at his funeral. Well, I understand that this... Uh work is uh, you know one of the main repertoire pieces for trombone it's often played as a symphony audition piece so i imagine that there's a lot of uh, thinking about how to interpret and get mm. the most out of this as a trombone teacher and performer yeah okay well they they went for i, I don't really know enough about this to have because yeah, i haven't heard other performances no, of it so yeah. i don't really know how to compare it 
But uh, it just came across to me like that because it's Mark Macho Funebre. But it's nice. I like it, mm. though. It's got a little... It didn't bring me down. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the third movement, Allegro Maestoso. Piano arpeggios start this section, which are played without a break. And the trombone comes in for the catchy melody. A more stately set of chords emerges suddenly from the piano at a minute and 52 seconds. And the trombone plays in its higher range here. The cadential material, often interrupted, is cheerful. It's like we're trying to get to that mood, but darker material interrupts. The trombone gets to show some chops in his arpeggiated quick scalar figures in the third minute. This is a very satisfying work to listen mm. to. It's very enjoyable. The lines are clear. It's played more in a classical mode in this performance, and it pays off, I'd say. Anyway, back to Jean-Michel Defy. More a la manière. This time, a la manière di Vivaldi. This is from 2002. This is a brisk concerto-like movement in D minor, marked Presto Leggero, which is preceded, so the first thing we hear, uh, by a mournful largado, Largo sorry, introduction in G minor. This starts really quickly after the David work. It's in a melancholy mood, like a Vivaldi middle movement. In fact, the opening doesn't make much make me think of Vivaldi. It's got an appealing melody, though. There's a buildup of harmonic tension starting at around a minute and 10 seconds that then tapers off, pauses, and launches into the faster section, which does indeed sound Vivaldian. The piano plays in the high end and manages a forte piano-like tone. The trombone shows some agility here, as Vivaldi's music would demand. Next we have A la Manière de Bach, track 8. This is said to recall the vitality of the Bach-Brandenburg concertos in general and bears a resemblance in contour with the third Brandenburg concerto. This is contrapuntally intricate as well as adventurous in its tonal explorations. Yeah, I'd say that. It starts more slowly and in a more stately rhythm than the Italianate Vivaldi. Indeed, it has a Bachian quality to it, a theme that can be easily developed. And by the 49 second mark, we have the theme being imitated in the scattered trombone and piano voices. Also, uh, one instrument will finish the lines the other started. At 152, we get something like the uh, Italian concerto in the piano line. The trombone comes in and imitates the piano's line, and vice versa. The piece finishes in celebratory Bach mode. Oh, by the way, the Alamania de Bach was written in 1990. That's the earliest of these works. Hmm. And then we get to the latest one, Jean-Michel Defy, Alamania de Brahms, written in 2011. This is a theme in variations. Brahms produced um, a few of those for piano and orchestra. The theme itself is played rather straightforwardly, as many of Brahms's theme and variation works are presented. Uh, this one is almost Baroque, like a theme by Handel. The first variation is an eighth note and two sixteenth note light gallop. It has like that galloping rhythm. I said I'd be using that word a lot in this podcast. The piano plays these uh, descending transitional phrases, sounding rather modern. And, you know, not really like Brahms to me. The next variation is rather lyrical, followed by an amazingly fast one with some of the most amazing playing we've heard from Davidson hmm. on the album. I think he's playing fast 16th notes here. The transitional phrase returns and a rather forlorn melodic variation is heard with a dusky quality to the harmony. I think, actually, he may even be playing 32, 32nd notes there. I'm not, I'm not really recalling it in my head now, but... It's very fast. The next two variations speed up a bit with the second consisting of staccato figuration by the trombone. The one at 430 is noble in phrasing and the work ends on a sturdy final note in this variation. Track 10 is in work by a contemporary composer, Luke Don, born in 1976. The work is called Counterplay and it was composed in 2021, fresh off the press. 
It was written for this duo and starts with a march-like theme in which the trombone and piano are slightly out of sync, according to the notes, uh, creating a limping off-kilter effect. A second gesture, a sighing trombone glissando, is heard after this, and both themes act as connective tissue. Indeed, we will hear them both throughout the work. So the staccato chords are heard in the piano, and the trombone staccato comes in on the off beats. It kind of made me think of the way, like, ragtime kind of has, you mm. know, that off-kilter beat. It didn't sound ragtimey, but it's a similar kind of technique, I'd say. The trombone sound is exploited here, and uh, Davidson makes most of it. He makes the instrument glow and growl. We hear the glissando theme at 138, followed by a tolling, repeated piano note. This section changes the entire profile of the piece. It's pretty warm in tone, yet mysterious. At 333, the march theme threatens to come back, but instead we get the trombone glissando with a mute effect on it. As the piano plays spindly, which means, uh, to me, not defining a specific harmony, figures, the trombone distantly laments with the mute. From around 545, more aggressive material comes in, with the piano following up the trombone's lines and sometimes playing them simultaneously. At 6.30, the glissando is back on the trombone, then pounding chords on the piano with the trombone, exclaiming on the offbeats. The piece ends on a spitting final glissando. (laughs) It's an interesting piece whose formal structure is easily followable. And the last work on the album is um, a a brief four-movement work by Paul Hindemith, his Sonat for trombone and piano, written in 1941. This is a foundational staple in the solo trombone repertoire. It's got an interrupted sonata form. Movements one and four combine to create the exposition development recapitulation structure, while movements two and three are interpolated into the center of the development section. So you can almost think of it as like a giant sonata movement. The first um, movement, I guess we'll say, uh, Allegro Moderato Maestoso, is brief. It starts with a galloping dotted eighth chord sequence. This one really gallops. It really just sounds kind of like (laughs) a horse. And a deep trombone line boldly sounding above it and not really quite in sync with it, rhythmically anyway. This changes to light piano accompaniment in the high end with the trombone's range rising to mid-range. Sections change quickly, and I really enjoyed uh, Davidson's playing here. His fully present tone is beautifully captured on the recording and impacts strongly. The piano is excellent, too. In fact, I haven't said enough about uh, Volkov on this album. He's really an ideal accompanist and has a really great sound himself. The track ends with the galloping rhythm and the trombone reaching for a note in the high range, but there's no resolution. We go into movement two. This is track 12, Allegretto Grazioso. So this is like kind of counts as part of the giant like development section in this work. It starts quickly with a knotty piano line. The trombone enters somberly after the 30-second mark, plays a melody, and the piano starts scurrying again as in the middle of the first movement. This is a movement of contrast with the piano playing most of the fleeter material, the trombone remaining morose in tone. Good characterization here by Volkov and, of course, by Davidson too. The third movement, the swashbuckler's song, a lead des Raufbolds, is marked Allegro Pesante. It has a bold opening by the trombone and piano together. The piano has a bit of an angular rhythm, then starts galloping as the trombone plays above, landing on a satisfying note and taking off again from there. Just after 1.30, there's a textural change to a smoother rhythm, but that breaks up for the cadence. The final bass note is held by the piano into the beginning of his chords for the final movement, which is marked Allegro Moderato Maestoso. Those soft, sustaining bass notes, they're 
quietly fading out, underpin the piano's more melodic line, which the trombone picks up about 30 seconds in. There's an imitation in between the piano and trombone lines, and again, I'm enjoying the trombone's full tone, well caught here. Let's give the uh, bridge engineer, Mike Cottle, some love here, as well as producers Gary Offenlock and Ted Merritt, because they do indeed <laughs> merit that uh, praise. This is a good-sounding recording. The movement ends boldly with the galloping rhythm in the piano and emphatic lower notes from the trombone. Excellent performance of this trombone centerpiece. And really, because of the A La Manière pieces, this was a fun record. Mm. Um, there's some characterful playing by Mark Davidson, whose tone I really enjoyed throughout the album. He tailors his phrasing well to the different styles he's playing in. And there are many of these styles given the Defy pieces. The contemporary uh, Luke Don piece gave him a chance to show some extended technique that we normally don't hear on the trombone. And I enjoyed him in the Ferdinand David piece, but I'd say the high point of this album, for me anyway, was the concluding Hindemith piece. The performance is exemplary, and I thought it gave us a good direct hearing of Mark Davidson's overall sound. Yeah, great trombone playing on a really interesting mix of material. I really enjoyed the Defy pieces, especially the Debussy one. It was interesting to hear that, you know, executed on a trombone in uh, that kind of dreamy atmosphere. Not only that, I feel like Debussy's entire career was like put into that one six yeah. minute work. Like every technique he had was in there. The Hindemith was interesting. I've never heard this piece, you know, for trombone. But I played the Hindemith as audition for music school on trumpet. And if I had heard this without seeing it, I would have guessed that's Hindemith right away, <laughs> just yeah. for the way he yeah. uses interesting intervals and things. And yeah, so overall, really enjoyable and interesting program. I thought the sound was satisfying. You know, you need to get some distance on the trombone. And you want to have that resonance in the room to have mm -hmm. an attractive sound. And they do that well. I think as a result... You know, the piano also sounds a bit distant in the recording to me, but the balance between the two instruments is really good. Yeah. And so I got more of a feel of being at a real recital in a nice right. hall more than a studio kind of uh, sound. Yeah, I thought it sounded very natural. It didn't yeah. really sound like the whole thing was, you know, balanced in the studio. Right, which was like fine. That. I mean, yeah, it yeah. just sounded authentic to me. Yeah, that's what I liked about it. So kudos to the engineers yeah. and producers too, as well as the performance. Natural sounding performance. All right, so our last, um, the, 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 the bottom piece of bread in yes. this uh, bone sandwich is an album called Obscurus by uh, Lucy Humphreys on the trumpet and Harry Rylance on the piano. This is on the Rubicon label. And this is trumpeter Lucy Humphreys' debut album. Hmm. Uh, the theme of the album is an exploration of the obscured. Okay. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we get that right away, really, in the opening Janacek piece, In the Mists, arranged for trumpet and piano by our trumpeter herself, Lucy Humphreys. She calls this work almost Impressionist and Debussy-like in its exploration of the misty keys of several flats, which Debussy, of course, used often to get his fantastic sound. And it's also kind of, you kind of wish he had written a bit more for brass, you know, he could have done some pretty mm. amazing uh, things. He's using those flat keys all the time. Anyway, the Andante, the first sound I heard, I wrote, wow. <laughs> After a few sustained piano notes, the trumpet plays way up in its range. The piece is rather haunting and mysterious sounding with its high tessitura in the trumpet being maintained pretty much throughout with some material in the middle range of the instrument. 
It's a work that relies on long, even breaths from the trumpet. There's a more active, sparkling section in the middle. At 3.07, the mute is put on, and we hear the trumpet with a distant sound play in the opening material. The piano is pushed into the foreground here due to the trumpet's faint sound in this section. Second movement, molto adagio, has a frequently cut-off melody with a kind of sigh at the end of each phrase before the pauses. It's really kind of cute. There's a lot of silence between. At 52 seconds, the entire profile of the movement changes with aggressive piano patterns and trumpet fanfares that suddenly stop and revert to the opening. The piano introduces a new section afterward, and at 1.30, the trumpet plays a new theme. There is a lot of different material packed into this very brief mm. movement. There's some impressive trumpet virtuosity at a minute and 58 seconds, brief though it is. The sudden and frequent pauses define this movement. Third movement, Andantino. The theme is similar in melodic shape to the previous movements, except it's continuous here, with no pauses in between sections of phrasing. It's at about the same slowish tempo, too. The melody is rather attractive and a bit downcast. At 1.33, fanfarish sounds are heard from the trumpet with more aggressive piano accompaniment that quickly dries up. Janicek seems to like these sudden contrasts. They occur throughout each movement. After that change, we hear the theme once more. The fourth movement, Presto, has a mute in the trumpet as it plays a dramatic line with brief chords from the piano to underpin the harmony. Humphreys has some color to her tone that she uses to add poignancy to certain lines, especially at the end of phrases, which subtly taper off. I like the effect. This movement is marked presto, but it only starts that way. By a minute and 55 seconds, it's down to an andante tempo for some melodic playing. By this point, the trumpet is being heard in full voice without the mute. There's a cool trumpet trill played alongside the piano's trill at 2.48, we go back to the main melody, which I should mention includes a lot of long pauses between phrases, as did the one in the second movement. I guess it's evoking somebody walking and stopping, you know, as they're mm. trying to figure out where they're going in this misty landscape. Uh, there's one more interlude, and we hear the opening theme stated one last time, ending simply on the trumpet's final note with no other harmony heard. Tracks five through seven, Peter Maxwell Davies, 20th century composer, this is his Litany for a Ruined Chapel Between Sheep and Shore. This is Davies' uh, homage to a ruined chapel in the Orkney Islands, where he spent a lot of his uh, time, specifically on the Holmes of Ire in Sanday, if you want to visit. The music is for solo trumpet, and Davies imagined it being played in the ruin, open to the skies, in the vast stillness of that haunted land and seascape. The piece was written for John Wallace, and Davies imagines Wallace trumpeting to the air, the sea, and a few nearby sheep outside a nearby <laughs> ruined chapel. I'm sure the sheep really appreciated that. <laughs> the music is as unpredictable as the environment to which the soloist is so exposed. Oh yeah, it does change rather capriciously at times. The first movement, this is for solo trumpet. There's no piano accompaniment on this. And it starts with a crescendo in the low register from nothing which is a really nice uh, effect. Long sustained notes begin the piece, outlining a harmony. The melody starts after that, solemnly played. It reaches a high note. Then the arpeggiated material starts rippling briefly like ocean waves. At 2.09, a new dancing section begins with a clear downbeat to the rhythm. This requires some impressive playing from the trumpet, and Humphreys delivers it with some character. She has a good feel for the rhythm, and her squeaks on the high notes are rather characterful, too. She has a lot of variation in tone. Differences tend to shade into each other rather than to be clearly marked off. 
and that makes this piece listenable. Uh, she mm -hmm. generally keeps a smooth, even tone, but will go into something slightly rougher sounding for the dancing passages. This movement ends on a high note, and then we go to the second movement. All these movements, incidentally, are don't have a tempo marking. They're just labeled one, two, and three. The second movement starts much like the first movement, only with slow descending passages. There are long tones and quite a few octave leaps in the middle of the movement, and some high-end sustained notes that come across well. Humphreys has an appealing way of shaping the melody in the slower sections to make them more song-like. Another high note ends the movement, and this time longer held. The third movement starts with a wild leaping melody, difficult for the trumpet, but Humphreys delivers this well. There are rapid repeated notes in the quick lines as well, and even some tone changes where Humphreys makes the trumpet growl. I really like that sound. The playing in this movement is virtuosic on several levels, timbrely as well as in technique. The last minute reverts to the opening solemn music with sustained notes. It ends on some long sustained high notes, followed by a final tone in the mid-range. So yeah, this is a, a fairly uh, good length um, solo trumpet work. Mm -hmm. To be in the spotlight that long is pretty impressive. It's um, interesting work. Good, you know, appealing too. Track eight, Olivier Messiaen, Vocalise Etude. This was originally written for a voice with no words. The vocalist would just sing, ah, uh, or something like that, a vowel sound. And this works on a lot of instruments, and it's played here in its original version. Only the trumpet is playing the vocal line. So it's not, in other words, it's not transposed, is what they mean by original. The piano is back, opens this movement with a quiet introductory arpeggio. It starts a chord pattern, and the trumpet comes in with a song-like melody. It's very pretty, and continues to be, even though some of Messiaen's odd chord colors are slipped into the piano accompaniment and creep into the trumpet melody as well. They don't really stick around for long, though, in this piece. It remains song-like throughout. The trumpet squeezes quite a bit of feeling out of the piece, and ultimately it's rather pretty. The next piece is by Filipos Raskovic. Uh, he's from Athens, and he's uh, based in Vilnius, Lithuania now. Hmm. And the piece is called Austria, O with an O, O-S-T-R-I-A. And um, there's a, I should have put this on the face, our Facebook site. Maybe I will. There's a YouTube video about um, how he uh, put this piece together. That might be worth your time if you're interested in it. This is for solo trumpet as well. There's no piano. He's also a uh, contemporary composer. I don't have the year of his birth here, though. It was composed for Humphreys in 2018, and she premiered it at the International Trumpet Guild Conference that year. The word Austria in Greek is a naval term for the warm southern wind, which brings rain and dust from the Sahara. And this distortion, sometimes almost meditative, sometimes more insistent, is textured and rough, much like those grains of sand brought on the air. Raskovic was fascinated by the variety of colors in the sound of the trumpet and wanted to expose them all in this piece. And yes, he does. This kind of <laughs> has a big wow opening. There's a piercing first note, then a gurgling low note, which is held for a long time. It's an attention-grabbing opening, <laughs> without a doubt. <laughs> uh, the gurgling note is held for an exceptionally long time, leading me to think of some kind of circular breathing is involved here because mm. it seems like it was longer than a a normal breath. The tone is also producing a harmonic high note at the same time. So this it's, it's kind of a split tone 
is there a name for that? This this kind of thing. It's one way to get brass harmonics if you play down yeah. low. I mean, as mm -hmm. we trumpet players, we used to do you know funny stuff playing around like yeah. this all the time. So it's really interesting to hear a piece that's a piece that uh, built around this uh, kind of thing. Yeah, right. Okay. Uh, suddenly, uh, there's a bright fanfare that quickly goes into creaky sounds in the mid range producing a faint bass note along with its mid-range solid tone. So I guess more of that uh, technique. All kinds of techniques are being used mm. in this piece to produce its unusual sound world. At the three-minute mark, it sounds like a gurgling trill is being sounded. Most of the work are these odd tones produced by extended techniques with occasional bursts of fanfare and brief, bright, melodic tones. It's a piece for those of us who enjoy the timbre of instruments. I was pretty captivated by it. It's an adventurous choice of material for Humpress, mm -hmm. who's very impressive, keeping a sense of the longer structural line of the composition while dispatching all of the technical tricks required. So the piece does come across as musical, despite all these things happening, if you're listening for the bigger picture. The end is quiet, uh, with what sounds like blowing into the mouthpiece and faint gurgling tones in the low end, with high-end ringing notes. It's interesting, but be prepared for some non-traditional playing here. Yeah, these these gurgling tones kind of uh, reminded me of the uh, the Tibetan monks when they chant. They get that big full throated sound. Yeah, yeah a, little, a little bit like that. We get a, a real respite from that with uh, tracks ten through thirteen. This is Respighi's Ancient Airs and Dances, Suite Number One, P one hundred nine in his catalog. This is arranged for trumpet and piano by Lucy Humphreys. So she's done quite a bit of work for this album. These are originally um, Renaissance era lute pieces that Respighi orchestrated. This first suite consists of dance forms that fit the more typically Baroque associations of the ringing piccolo trumpet sound, hence Humphreys' arrangement. First movement, balletto. These are all named after Baroque-era dances, or Renaissance-era dances, I should say. Balletto. This is fanfarish and very Baroque-sounding. There's a piano in this, by the way, too, I should mention. Without the relative heaviness of the orchestral arrangement Respighi made. He had a lot of orchestral colors in this arrangement, and it sounded kind of heavy. It's nice, but it doesn't sound like a lean, modern Baroque orchestra normally when it's played. But here it does. The the pianist, uh, Rylance, um, does um, kind of get this sound well. It really sounds um, good like this. And the duo make the piece dance with an uplift to the downbeats. At 112, there's a more rushing middle section. The trumpet sound throughout has a Baroque shine to it that we haven't heard on the album so far. And it's so suitable for this music. It makes it very appealing. It's a good arrangement. The second uh, movement, this is um, track 11, Gagliarda, which was an Italian dance from the era. It has a dancing theme at the beginning with the rhythm again appropriately played with a lift to it. At the 32 second mark, there's a nicely taken thinner tone to the trumpet to distinguish this theme from the opening. The piano remains full on, then quiets at 57 seconds for the middle section. The melodic playing is long and winding, ideally suited for the trumpet's tone. The piano comes in with imitations of the theme after the trumpet plays it. The opening repeats in a more fanfarish way, at least in juxtaposition to the middle section. The third movement, again, these are all Italian dances, really. This is a villanella. Well, this is a, this is a song, actually. A villanella is a song. And it's a slower song-like piece. The piano plays its chords in a light staccato fashion. Then the trumpet comes in with its mournful, Italianate, legato melody. Humphreys manages a more muted tone and timbral color here. At the two-minute mark, a more joyful middle section starts on the piano, and the trumpet tone brightens a bit for a moment. 
but the opening quickly returns and we get a repeat of the material. The fourth movement is another dance, Paso Mezzo and Mascarada. This has a very lively and bright dancing melody with rippling figures brilliantly taken by Humphreys. The Mascarada section is more stately, it's heard after the one minute mark, and square in rhythm with a brief Siciliano rhythm heard just before the opening theme is repeated. We get a repeat of the Mascarada and the Siciliano. At 2 minutes and 19 seconds, the trumpet shows some virtuosic figuration, then a quick repeat of the Paso Menso. The final track on the album, we go from the <laughs> Renaissance era to the 20th century <laughs> with a work by Toru Takemitsu, the great uh, Japanese composer, the great 20th century Japanese composer. He was really a very much a post-war mm. modernist, really in the the like of like Ligeti and composers like that. And he had his own very distinct voice. This work is called Paths, Opus 50, and it's written in memory of Witold Ludoslavsky, the Polish composer, also 20th century. The piece, this is really interesting. I, I was kind of intrigued by this piece. It allegedly depicts a conversation between the deceased Ludoslavsky and the then-living Takemitsu. Hmm. Uh, the trumpet takes on both roles, open, sometimes pained and crying for the voice of Takemitsu, and it has a mute in it with a distant and often conciliatory tone for the voice of Ludoslavsky. It's like they're talking to each other. Right. He's responding from beyond the veil of death. It's, so it's kind of a haunting, almost creepy piece in mm. a way. <laughs> the muted, distant-sounding solo trumpet opens the piece. So Ludoslavsky's voice really starts. And Takamitsu responds loudly with the full-toned trumpet. So I'm guessing the, the trumpeter has to keep taking the mute out of the instrument and putting it back right. in for these different sections. It would be interesting to see this, actually. It allows the uh, inter the trumpeter to show some uh, creativity and interpretation. It's haunting, especially in the muted playing of Ludoslavsky's voice. The more present trumpet gets into some louder outbursts, but is often open-hearted and plain-spoken, as apparently was Takamitsu himself. At 3 minutes and 40 seconds, the muted Ludoslavsky voice has some harsh sounds in it that come as a surprise. Uh, he's complaining about something. The conversation goes on with some interesting variety in both voices and ends with Takamitsu's voice almost reaching out at a mezzo forte. It's an interesting way to end the recital and a very haunting piece. I would recommend hearing it. So Lucy Humphreys is the star on this album and boldly performs three works for solo trumpet with piano accompanying in the other three. The program is demanding tonally and Humphreys displays a full palette of tone colors, uh, particularly in Raskovic's Austria, which demands it. The program is interesting throughout, but no less in the other two solo trumpet works by Takamitsu and Davies. The accompaniment from Rylance is fine, and he can and he can vary his material effectively too, particularly in the opening Janacek work. In the end, this is an intriguing program and performance. It's a little dark toned and a little heavy, so be prepared for that. It's it's going to be a little demanding. Uh, it had me wondering at the possibilities that 20th century composers opened up and their inventiveness, which is really starting to settle down on me as the 20th century gets further away and as I get older too. It's an impressive program and performance by Humphreys throughout. Yeah, definitely an impressive debut recording here. Very adventurous programming and lots of technically difficult pieces. Interesting transcriptions and arrangements done here. 
Uh, I didn't even care for the Davies and Raskovic musically much, but they were impressive and fun for <laughs> a listen. I was entertained. Uh, Humphreys has great technical ability and great chops. Mm. I really enjoyed her variety of tones and how she let it ring out and a little bit of sizzle in spots, yeah, too. Yeah, she got the sizzle. She wasn't being too polite. Uh, yeah. The only kind of tonal criticism I have, and I don't really think it's hers, but in the Respighi piece with the piccolo, you know, uh. the piccolo is uh, is small and so you know it kind of needs i think more of a room sound to let it really shine and here it doesn't do that in you know this recording environment i would have you know preferred maybe a little different uh change of uh positioning or you know room to get a little bit more shine on that tone there i just think that's a recording thing but yeah impressively played and very varied and interesting selection of material yeah. and it's yeah to come out of the gate with uh, this as your first recording i think she'll turn some heads and uh, yeah. get some attention with this yeah i think so too all right so there's uh that's bone sandwich number one. Bone sandwich number we're one. Double decker. <laughs> and uh, we're going to go on to the same kind of idea in jazz, although the second recording has flukelhorn and trombone together. But we're going to start out with a trumpet let recording, and that's going to be Ginger's Hollow by Lindley Hamilton. And this a is nice on, title, by the way. Yeah. Yes. Whirlwind Recordings came out May 4th. Now, Lindley Hamilton is a musician, educator, and broadcaster from Northern Ireland. He's got a doctorate of jazz performance. He's also a music lecturer at Ulster University. And he has a radio show, too, uh, Jazz World with Lindley Hamilton on BBC Radio Ulster. He's got his own jazz quintet, plays trumpet and flugelhorn. We'll hear on this recording. He's done some uh, session work with musicians such as Van Morrison, Jackie Dankworth and uh, Paul Brady, great Irish singer-songwriter, actually play some of his tunes in uh, my, uh, you know, rock mm. folk rock band there too. Oh, wow. uh, and he's got six studio albums previous to this, and uh, this current band that we're going to hear here has got an interesting mix of musicians from Ireland and also a couple U.S. musicians. So we've got Lindley Hamilton on trumpet, Derek Doc O'Connor on tenor sax. Ken Boylan on piano and organ. Mark Egan, U.S. musician on bass who played with Pat Metheny and even the great mm. Gil Evans. And we've got the well-known drummer Adam Nussbaum, who's played with everyone from Stan Getz, David Liebman, and the Brecker Brothers. Yeah, Pat, Pat Metheny, who has a new album coming out uh, very soon. Oh, cool. Yeah. We'll definitely give that one a listen. Yeah. And I'm not exactly sure. I apologize because the... Bandcamp information, what else I can find online, is not completely clear about the composition credits, but they are all either credited to Hamilton or Boylan or both. Uh, so I may not have it exactly right. It's a little bit vague in the listings, but I think the first one is credit to both Boylan and Hamilton, and it's called Shinebox. And we get off to a funky start. Uh, there's an eight-measure intro of syncopated bass and left-hand piano. Piano chords get added in halfway through, and Nussbaum lays down a backbeat to that. The horns pick up to some sleekly arranged melody lines with an interesting structure. There's an eight-measure section, a four-measure section with a chord change, and then tricky horn figures and a break, and then two measures with a different tempo that you can count in four <laughs> at that different mm -hmm. tempo, then back to the previous tempo for two measures. Uh, the first time around, there's another four measures 
on the same chord before a repeat. But the second time, Hamilton comes right in there at that point with his solo. Very nice tone, rhythmically snappy phrases, nice tumbling lines. Boylan's organ sound sneaks nicely in under him. And then he goes on to solo with some kind of whirling Leslie type effects and nice swells there as well. O'Connor is next on tenor. He's got a husky tone, nice speedy phrases. And listen to the change-ups in Egan's bass lines as they get it worked up to a swing there. Uh, nice fills and interaction from Nussbaum. They turn it back to the funky groove with some extra ghostly organ swells added in before hitting the melody once more to wrap it up. Track two is Sunday Morning. This is a Boylan original. Another funky, synced, soulful groove of piano and bass for an eight-measure intro. Nussbaum just adds the backbeat on top of that. Uh, the horn line melodies build in three eight-measure sections, starting out funky and bluesy in unison, and then splitting off. The next section gets a lift and turns happier with a chord change in organ injection. Then a final kind of major joyful section. Hamilton and O'Connor trade solo phrases in conversational style, working up to playing together. All in a happy mood here. They take another run through the melody with some final phrase repeats to a happy ending. It's just like a Sunday morning. Track three, another Boylan tune, Stonky. <laughs> a four-bar intro here with choppy, <laughs> syncopated piano chords over a straight beat. We hear that chord pattern again for eight measures, this time with the piano melody added, and whoa, then we're off into a crazy double-time swing melody for 16 measures. Check out that ringing fretless bass tone under there from Egan. Back to the straight beat section, this time with the horns taking over the melody lines and continuing into the swing, and one more straight section of eight to finish up. There's a big break for O'Connor to get worked up into a soulful sax solo, working through both rhythmic feels and tempos, those change-ups. He gets some speedy double time and angsty squawks on the way. Boylan follows on piano with a nice bouncy and bluesy touch into more swinging. And Hamilton's next with nicely hesitated phrases over the straight beat into longer connected swinging lines. I like how he picks up ideas from the melody into his solo. Uh, they take it once more through the sandwich of straight with swinging center and the horns to wrap it up. Yeah, I liked his uh, funky beats on all three of these tracks, yeah, really. really and fun. Then, then, then it kind of changes up here. Let's... Yeah. Uh, next, we've got the title track, Ginger's Hollow. It's uh, apparently a heartfelt tribute. This is quoting from the band camp to a beloved farm cat that mm -hmm. Lindley cared for until its untimely demise. You must have liked that cat to write a tune about it. Yeah. This one has kind of a Brazilian beat and washy Rhodes piano sound from Boylan. Nice syncopated bass intervals from Egan on the eight measure intro. The melody is wistful, started out by Hamilton's horn solo. Sounds like an eight measure A section, then a B section, then the A again, which is joined by O'Connor with harmonized lines. The next section, I guess you could say, is a C. It has a real lift to it with soaring lines from Hamilton. Then there's kind of a murky modal interlude of Rhodes into a ringing solo on the keys with some nice funky attacks. Very dreamy tone in there. The beat picks up more of a groove as it alternates between the dark murky sections and the main sections. Hamilton solos next, getting some nice minor modal licks, contrasting with his happier and reaching lines. A uh, nice mix of articulation. Uh, this uh, Rhodes transition back into the melody, uh, this time with both horns on the A and C sections we heard before, 
They keep it going with a vamp on the minor modal section with some blowing time from O'Connor and nice accents from Nussbaum to finish it up. Track 5, Place at the Ace, another <laughs> boiling tune. And Nussbaum gets it going with a drum intro and a New Orleans-style beat. Boylan gets fun minor melody going. Uh, that gets horn lines with a lot of interplay and answering phrases stacked on with organ backing. It sounds really thick with all these layers of sound, and it settles into a softer groove before Hamilton gets a solo started. He builds it really nicely here from shorter phrases with lots of space. I like the soft articulation he uses on repeated notes. The organ swells underneath give it a lot of atmosphere. And Nussbaum has a lot of nice groove and field change-ups on the way. O'Connor solos next, starting out really smooth, but with a couple of low honks peppered in there. He works up the intensity with a muscular sound, more honks and high cries. It simmers a bit before Boylan gets the piano melody going again. Organ's in there too. And the horn melody section follows, and Nussbaum takes it out with the beat to a slowdown over organ. Track six is called Jason's Dream. It's a waltzing tune, an interesting 11-measure intro with syncopated chords that give it a hesitated feel. The melody has a gently flowing, alternating phrase feel to it. Hamilton starts it out solo. It seems to be an A-B-A-C kind of structure. O'Connor joins in with sax harmony on the second A section, and it really builds up on the final part. Then there's another four-measure transition into a piano solo from Boylan with nicely ringing notes and gentle runs. Hamilton has a very nice solo on this tune as well with a fluffy tone and pretty butterfly-like flitting phrases. And O'Connor has a more gutsy and soulful tenor in contrast, uh, building up to some wails. They take it through that melody again with a new syncopated horn idea for a little coda to a soft ending. Track 7, a Hamilton composition, Lost in the Crowd. This one starts with an eight-measure intro of piano chords and bass with interesting accents and syncopation to keep you counting. Uh, the horns come in with the melody that has some interesting little rhythms and skips in it, as well as some really high but controlled trumpet notes. But don't miss the great bass from Egan underneath. It's an evolving 32-measure melody that has a tail line of descending bass and piano. Boylan has a piano solo here. Nice snappy brushwork from Nussbaum underneath that. And there's a great melodic fretless bass solo from Egan, starting out way up high. Hamilton follows with a gently building solo that also gets up high, but has soft articulation. And then they reset with the intro again into the melody. After the descending line, there's a new section of horn lines to the end. A nice work keeping those high notes in tune mm. on the trumpet and sax. It's a little tricky up in that register to uh, get everything to sound good. Track eight's called Watch Those Eyes. It starts with an intro of cool alternating chord bass ostinato with a Brazilian feel and rhythmic piano chords. Nussbaum mixes things up around the kit. The horns come in with a choppy melody for 16 measures that then changes up to a double time feel on, in a swing section. I like the little breakup with the trumpet and then sax answering phrase on the way. Nussbaum fills it in into a reset into the Latin beat for O'Connor to get started with the solo. He navigates the modal and rhythmic switches nicely, has some edgy and speedy licks, and Hamilton goes next, connecting phrases nicely with some interesting rhythmic change-ups through the sections. Then the horns and boiling trade-off with Nussbaum for some energetic drum soloing. Take it once more through the melody with some final phrase repeats and intense fills from Nussbaum to finish it out. 
And that's it. It's a fine recording of original, mostly uplifting and rhythmic tunes from Hamilton and Boylan. The compositions all have little surprises to keep you entertained through the melodies. There's funky stuff, Latin grooves, and breaks into swing sections along the way. Nussbaum and Egan make a tight rhythmic engine. The fretless bass sound really gives it some flavor in spots. Boylan mixes up the keyboard tones with Rhodes and organ in addition to the piano, and his solos are really interesting. O'Connor's sax solos are energetic with impressive licks. He's got a big tone that can be gruff or silky from one moment to the next. And of course, Hamilton's the leader here with inventive and well-structured solos. I like his phrasing and articulation, nicely controlled, higher register, all with good tone. So how about it? Some jazz from Northern Ireland on your listening list this week. Yeah, um, you used the word uplifting, and it's funny because that's the word I chose too. Because huh. I, I didn't want to go to exciting, yeah, but mm-hmm. although the last track has some good exciting excitement on it, but most of the record was it was very it was it was very uplifting. It was it was comfortable, and then it got like to uplifting mm. notes. It just made me feel happy. So it was, it was a good right. you know a good feeling record, and I really appreciated that. I like the uh, surprisingly funky beats in the first three tracks. A lot of those three tracks stood out for me. And Hamilton's playing, I thought, tended to be really melodic. And that's just probably mm-hmm. what made me so happy about the record. It catches your ear appealingly as a result, I guess, you know? Right. The album kind of, it mellows out as it goes, but all those tunes, due to their melodic nature, wind up being appealing too. And I found um, Ginger's Hollow, the, the, the one about the cat, right? Yeah. That really lifted my spirit a lot too. Mm. It was sort of soothing. It lifted me up. Now, the last track, Watch Those Eyes, has some of the most exciting solos on the album. Uh, the soloists all sounded really aggressive on that, and they stretched out a bit. So it was kind of, it was, a, it was yeah. just, they kind of went out with a bang there. I liked that. Oh, cool. So it's an enjoyable listen, I'd say. I'd give it a, a, a recommendation. I liked it. I'd want to hear it again, I think. Yeah. Yeah, check out his other recordings as mm-hmm. well. Nice little catalog of stuff there. Now, as always, I try to you know, keep <laughs> my choices as international as possible so take your passport we're going to go to belgium next never been there for only only in ear (laughs) my ears only been there not my body (laughs) for the remy labe quintet careless territories on challenge records this one also came out on may 5th so labe is a belgian jazz trumpet player, songwriter, and orchestrator, big band leader and producer and educator as well. He's a graduate of Berklee College of Music and also Manhattan School of Music. And he's a a ranger for the Grammy Award winning band, the Afro-Latin Jazz Orchestra, which directed by Arturo O'Farrell, as well as for the W.E. Big Band. Since uh, September 2021, he's a jazz theory and jazz brass teacher in the department of Luxembourg Music Conservatory. And he's got as his main projects, this quintet. And also he does some songwriting and pop music uh, projects as well. So this quintet here is composed of some players uh, and classmates from his college years at Berkeley and Manhattan School. We've got LeBay on flugelhorn on this recording exclusively. Phil Abraham, a Belgian trombonist, and that's our trombone sandwich for the jazz section here. We got Amory Fay, a French pianist. Alexandra Gilson on double bass. I couldn't find much out about him. We have another French drummer as well, Raphael Panier, to round out the group. We're going to start right out with 
the title track to open Careless Territories. This is a LaBay composition. Almost all the compositions here, we've got one standard uh, that's not one of his originals. And interestingly, we start out with a ballad. LaBay begins uh, solo here for two measures and is soon joined by the others. Abraham has offset phrases on the trombone that interweave with the flugelhorn for the first eight measures. And then he takes over for the first part of the next section before it switches back to LaBay. It's very slow tempo with soft tom beats from Panier, and the brass timbres are warm and fluffy. Uh, Fay has a piano solo next. It's slowly unfurling with tasty space and nice tumbling phrases of notes with a soft touch. And Abraham is up next on the trombone, starting softly and leisurely, exploring some lower register. Panier gradually gets more cymbaled decorations and subdivisions, going into a double-time feel with rim clicks, and LeBay joins in with backing lines into shared improvisations. It reaches a climax with a nice low blurt from Abraham and then pulls back to slow and soft with just the horns over the bass with melody lines and improvisations to finish it up. A very nice warm brass blend of tones. Track two, Say It, another LeBay original. Panier gets a muted beat going to bring in this surprising vocal number from LeBay. Mm. The melody has halting short vocal phrases, seems to be 32 measures, with the main repeating eight measure A section and shorter four measure transition and final sections to it. Abraham softly backs the vocal lines on muted trombone. There's a nicely arranged horn transition section with LeBay quickly getting to the flugelhorn and then getting into his own solo over the happy tune. Nice melodic lines and interesting rhythmic phrasing. Abraham solos next with snappy phrases and quick slide work. There's another arranged horn transition section into a repeat of the melody, but this time both horns take it instead of the vocals. It's a happy swinging tune. Track three, another of LeBay's originals, While You're Here. Penny gets it interesting bass drum and tom beat going, then trickling piano from Faye and ringing bass from Gilson join in. Abraham adds short trombone wah-wahs, and Labea adds a more lyrical flugelhorn melody on top. And Panier has busy and heavier fills going on underneath while the horns float above. Abraham's switching to longer lines with Labea. The harmonies are nice, but the contrast with the drums is quite unusual. The swelling lines dissipate into just Labea over the bass and drums with improvised lines to a sudden ending. It's kind of a unique tune uh, after the previous ones. Track four, Bring It On, another one of Levy's original. All right, a funky bass ostinato and cowbell. <laughs> this one going with an intro of alternating chords. They go around again with some bouncy piano added in. The horns come in with a really cool arrangement with interaction and upward glisses. Think 1960s Lee Morgan blue note funky style. There's an open section of eight measures with a cool bass break. Uh, then the melody is like a 12-bar minor blues with a six-measure extra transition pattern added on offer uh, twice around that they go through. Uh, the solos just follow the 12-bar blues pattern over that funky bass ostinato. LaBay is up first with some fine bluesy phrases, lots of triplets and harmonic tension. Uh, they switch it up to swing after a couple choruses, and Abraham joins back in for eight measures of a horn arrangement transition section with a break to get a bass solo from Gilson started. He works off from the ostinato idea into snappy, rhythmic, and bluesy ideas. 
There's another new arranged horn section of 16 measures with interesting modulations that brings it back to the melody after a bass break, and they work up the tension with some repeated phrases into a vamping section with cowbell and animated piano, then exchanges between LeBay and Abraham. It gets softer until just the bass remains to end it. A funky fun and really good arranging on the horn parts on this tune. Another original tune, track five, Close By. This is a moody tune carried by the bass pulse of Gilson. He starts it with ringing ostinato figures under chiming piano chords, giving it a slow four feel. Penny is freed up to add cymbal and tom textures on the drums because the bass is really establishing that rhythm. Abraham starts the melody that has short swaying phrases, and Labe joins in answering phrases and takes the next section. The harmonies have interesting twists changing the mood. Uh, the horns have more interactions over piano with some flugel trills as Penny helps it build up to a swelling kind of uplifting climax. Things get quiet for a piano solo with rippling phrases of notes into chiming chords and more aggressive figures and Penny is beating furious fills and accents underneath on the drums. It comes down soft again for LeBay to start a flugel solo over ringing bass and he becomes more animated with speedy lines and figures as the intensity grows from the trio below. Fight continues on intensely and the horns return with backing lines. Abraham gets phrases from the opening melody going into improvisations over ringing piano chords and drum clicks to a soft ending. Uh, interesting, slightly amorphous <laughs> with changing flows and intriguing horn interplay. Track six, another original, Hephaestos, which I guess is the ancient Greek god of fire metallurgy and crafts. This tune transforms a lot as it goes on. It starts like a ballad with a soft trilly flugelhorn melody over ringing bass notes and trickling piano. From the ninth measure, Abraham joins in with harmony lines and then takes over with fluffy and slurred lines, some playful tonguing into a restatement of the start of the melody around a 24 measure construction, but then things start getting intense with ringing modal piano chords and a new subdivided pressing beat. Lebe has some solo lines over that that go into a new dreamy swelling strain together with trombone. And it comes down for some low burbling trombone notes into a solo from Abraham. It's playful and humorous until things start building in intensity again. Lebe joins in once more with his own improvised lines and the two carry on together to a slightly slowed ending. Track 7, another original from Lebe, Then What? Time for a fun speedy bebop tune now. Well, there's a really tight horn line arrangement for an eight measure intro over snappy brushwork from Pennier. It's an AABA 32 measure construction, like some kind of alteration on rhythm changes, it sounds like. Really tricky horn phrases with cute little drum breaks and contrasting more flowing legato lines on the B section. Lobby's up first for a solo, nice melodic ideas and speedy boppy phrasing. Abraham follows with a lot of tricky slide work, but nice melodies in his solo as well. And then Fai and Penier trade eights going around with piano and drums. Nice speedy brush playing in there. The horns add some hits and lines over uh, some more drumming into a final run of the melody. It's fast fun for everyone involved here. Track eight, one more Labe original, up to you. This one starts with trombone lines over just bass. Piano and drums kick in with Labe taking lines with the trombone. At first, a four-beat feel forms with subdivided cymbals, but then it transforms into a six-eight kind of feel as the wispy horn lines go on. 
Gilson is providing the bass pulse as la bass solos. The beat becomes busier with cymbals and bass figures into a Latin groove for a piano solo uh, with a lot of fleet lines that change direction quickly. Eventually, it transforms into a driving swing briefly before the horns return with burbly lines into more backing phrases. The horn lines continue as Panier lets loose around the drum kit, and then the piano rings out chords to quietening drums and bass in a slowing groove. Abraham brings back some high, longing melody lines, joined by Labé for some harmony to bring it to a close. It's another tune that evolves in a lot of different rhythmic ways. And we're going to get to one standard on the recording, Richard Rodgers' Have You Met Miss Jones, a good old AABA tune. Fire gives it a bouncy piano intro, and Labé and Abraham trade off melody lines with backing and interplay. Penny has snappy brushwork, but later switches to sticks. Abraham solos first, and then Fai. They have a, a lot of fun switching up the feel. Gilson changing between driving, walking bass, and ringing repeated notes. Check out the cool, hesitated hits during the piano solo. Things get harmonically interesting for what seems to be the start of Labé's solo, but becomes traded exchanges with Pania instead. It comes down soft, only over bass pulses for the horns to start another run through the melody, and ends up with some nicely arranged horns. And the final track, Sunflower Eyes, another Labé original. Faye starts this ballad out with a piano intro, and Labé comes in with a sweet, fluffy melody, great tone and subtle vibrato. Abraham adds backing lines, seems to be a melody of 21 measures. The ending has some interesting chords, and they make a trilly transition into a gentle solo from Abraham. Labé comes in midway through the form, and then they work together with arranged lines of warm harmonies. There's a new little four-measure arranged transition section after the chords with trills before Abraham gets to some more soloing with some playful phrasing. He gets a full run this time, really nice melodic and soft improvisations, and Labé starts a run of his own with nice little ornaments to his animated lines. Abraham joins in for some backing near the end, and they repeat the final alternating chord idea into some soft ending horn lines. And that wraps it up. There's some fine brass playing here, with Labé's warm flugel sound blending with Abraham's soft but flexible trombone playing. The tunes have a lot of variety, ballads, a happy vocal tune, a standard, and a funky bluesy tune, and a little bebop there too. Sometimes they have unique structures, many of the songs transform in feel and rhythm along the way, keeping you surprised, and they don't stick to everyone soloing in order, but rather mix things up and include a lot of interplay. Even over the more free-flowing rhythm sections of tunes, they're conscious of this horn interplay, working out nice harmonized figures in the lines, and on the tighter melody sections, the horn arrangements are skillful and fun. Fihe also has creative keyboard solos, and Gilson's bass pulse carries a lot of the tunes, allowing Pena to do some interesting decorative drumming. Yeah, check this one out for some very smooth and warm blended Belgian brass. You know, this album caught my classical ear. Uh, there's some good grooves on the album and a lot of tension building harmonically. That really stood out for mm. me. And, you know, we hear that in classical music all the time. Like uh, an example would be the end of Up to You. Right? Oh, right, you listen right. to that. Yeah. The musical structures really kept me interested. And of course, the playing did too. There's good tone on the trumpet or the, the flugelhorn here and lots of expression from the trombone, including some rather humorous phrasing and sound yes. <laughs> in his solo on Then What? Okay, that's mm. a good track to sample the trombone solo on. And also the theme of Have You Met Miss Jones too. The trombone is showing a sense of humor there. 
I like the piano's florid harmony throughout. Uh, he manages a lot of sound while keeping his playing transparent. There's a lot of variety of compositions on the album, so we get to hear the soloists in different contexts, and they come up well in all of them, I thought. So I, I liked this. Yeah, it was fun. Mm. You get that conical bore of the flugelhorn, and you know it just blends yeah. with the trombone, so you get that really nice brass tone. You know, I guess they were both fans of the... Um, Clark Terry, Bob Brookmeyer quintet, which, you know, kind of established that nice brass blend in jazz history. So, yeah, it's got kind of a mellow sort of tone quality yeah. to it. You know, it's a little yeah. more, you know, a little less transparent than the, the brighter trumpet right, sound. Right. Yeah. All right. And our last album is a very interesting program here. This was my jazz album of the week. And I got to oh. tell you, this one's going to be on my top 10 list at the end of the year, I'm sure. Maybe okay. at the top of it. I like this a lot. It's by John Elabuni on Skydeck Music called You Are Not Alone, and it came out May 17th. Now, Elabuni is from La Crosse, Wisconsin, hmm. or that's where he's based anyway. He's a musician, educator, liturgist, and interestingly, he's involved with incorporating jazz into worship music, which sounds hmm. kind of interesting. He's a graduate of Luther College with a degree emphasizing classical trumpet performance, and he went on to get a Master of Music degree in Jazz Studies from Western Michigan University in Kalamazoo. And he also joined the music faculty there where he taught jazz brass lessons and directed the Jazz Lab Band. He's also taught on the music faculty of Luther College for eight years. Currently, he serves as an assistant teaching professor at the University of Wisconsin La Crosse. This is uh, his quote on this album. Quote, you are not alone. Others share your griefs. Others will share your joys. This album contains music for the heart, designed for healing, feeling, and being. In each selection, the musicians collectively meditate on a specific challenge or theme, creating a form of musical storytelling that is both personal and communal, both intimate and vast. Sometimes it's a party, other times a prayer, or both. The album is intentionally ordered, moving through both lament and joy with improvised segues that weave one piece to the next. I encourage you to listen to the album as you'd watch a movie as a whole and in one sitting. Yeah, and this Uncle. is, I, I gotta say though, if you're gonna listen to this in one sitting, uh, set some time. Yeah. <laughs> it's a pretty long album. Well, you need an hour and 15 minutes. Yeah, but it's a good hour and 15 minutes. Yeah, I really enjoyed this a lot. But I'd like yeah. to say too, you know, no, you know, uh, we talk about this all the time, but classical music, absolutely, you want to hear a whole work. You know, yeah. you, you don't split you don't up movements album, from yeah. different works on a playlist, right? right. You right. just don't do that. And unfortunately... <laughs> oh, people do. I know. But, uh, <laughs> Unfortunately, streaming has killed, you know, the album format of, you know, artwork right. that had developed, you know, to a high level in the 60s in rock and pop music. You know, yeah. you had the, you know, you had Sgt. Peppers and Pet Sounds and yeah. Pink Floyd and, you know, you're supposed to listen to things in an order uninterrupted to go on a little musical journey. Yeah. And that hasn't always been the case in jazz, but sometimes it is. You know, and, and love Supreme. Yeah. yeah so you, you want to go through a little constructed tour of the mm -hmm. artist's vision. And they should definitely do that here. And we'll tell you why. So on this recording, we've got Alaboni on trumpet and flugelhorn, also all of his original compositions. Simon Harding on alto and tenor sax, bass clarinet, and flute. Mike Conrad on piano. 
Karen Quinn on acoustic and electric bass, Christopher Jensen on drums, and Ryan Frost on Dumbeck, which is a goblet drum on track nine. And Elabuni's daughter, Claire, lends her voice on the final track. We'll talk about that when we get there. Okay, we're going to start out with the first track, Border Town Boogaloo. <laughs> I was hooked when I heard this, uh, when I first checked this album out. I just like the word boogaloo. I like the yeah. rhythm of the boogaloo. It's just really fantastic. So piano and acoustic bass with synced up funky figures over the drums start this one out. It's oh, yeah. an eight measure intro with pauses to it. And then this 20 measure kind of main form of the tune. And check out these unexpected chiming high piano notes. <laughs> sort of at a different key on the third and eighth measure. It's a nice little kind of touch there. There's also interesting modulations along the way and some cool mixing up of the beat. Trumpet and tenor sax come in for a round of that 20 measure section with a horn melody on top. There's some stop time to get a soulful sax solo started from Harding. And Jensen mixes up an energetic beat on the drums underneath. It works up to a gospel-like fervor with punctuated piano chords. And Alboni joins in with some high accented backing lines at the end of the solo. Then they reset with the eight measure intro into the horn melody again. A nice tease this time continuing with some of those intro funky phrases into drum solo uh, sections from Jensen. The horns join in as well and finish up with the melody section into a gospely hold with some horn improv. And Jensen keeps on with some tom and cymbal work to a long extended fade of sound on this track. Track two, What Wondrous Love Is This? Very pretty start to this tune with a longing folk sounding melody from Elaboni and Harding on bass clarinet over the piano. A nice blend of tones here. Cymbal swells bring in bass and drums with a slow beat for Elaboni to continue with a delicately played melody with a nicely placed half valve note on the way. It gradually builds and lifts before softening to have Harding take some melody rather plainly on the bass clarinet. The beat falls away for a bit, leaving Conrad solo on the piano. Ringing bass and drum brushes bring back a steady beat, while Conrad chimes out chords and rippling lines. Alaboni returns for improvisations into nicely controlled high-register cries and double-time licks over long low tones from Harding. The horns join together again on melody lines and bring things to a quietening pause. There's a kind of restart of a processional, but that gives way to some dreamy solo piano from Conrad with a forward push of modulating movement and final descent. It's pretty and pretty unpredictable, too. It's really, yeah, pretty yeah. is a good word for this. Yeah, I liked it a lot. Track three is Overture. It's also a tender ballad kind of sound. Conrad has a solo piano opening with chords and ringing high notes into some repeated notes and intervals that sort of imply some motion for Alaboni to enter with the melody and a great warm tone and phrasing. Bass and drums enter subtly after 16 bars for another section, and then Harding joins on flute here for some harmonized and then solo lines. Alaboni gets an improvised lyrical solo with unhurried phrasing, even while doing some speedier rhythmic phrases, and Harding joins back in and continues on with pretty fluttering improvised lines. Really nice flute tone. Alboni takes another run of the melody with the flute joining in for some harmonization again, and Conrad closes it out with a solo piano ending. Beautiful and gentle playing on this track. Track four is called Playful. 
and a playful pickup line of trumpet, alto sax, and piano into the melody of flowing horn lines over throbbing electric bass and subdivided drums. It's uh, 16 measures into a new section of rising horn and synced bass lines that lift to a solo from Alabuni over a great kind of cruising groove. I don't know how to describe it. It's just got that, you know, put the top down and drive kind of uh, feel to it. And check out that hi-hat and snappy bass line going on there. Alaboni is snappy and energetic through the tricky chord changes, getting up high and bringing it back down with a nice arc to his solo. Quinn gets a bass solo next, very nice funky phrases there, and Conrad follows on piano, then Harding on alto sax, and he has a really nice searing tone on alto sax, Hmm. uh, fluid phrasing. I like how he sounds completely different on tenor and alto, and all that nice flute playing before too. Uh, they take it through the melody sections again to a hold, and there's a pause. You think it's over, but a new descending horn line to a couple holds with more sax improv and dancing cymbals come along. And now you really think it's over, hmm. but do not adjust your equipment right. until the three ominous low piano chords have rung out. <laughs> Wasn't ready for uh, that. Very interesting. Track five, Invisible. A piano intro of low ringing chords bring in Alaboni on a melody line with soft sax lines accompanying. The harmonies are dark and introspective, just a little closing hi-hat and brushes to keep a slow beat. Acoustic bass adds in subtly, and Conrad has a piano touch with a very smoothness to it and attention to dynamics. Alaboni follows, starting with fluffy phrases, sounds like flugelhorn here, a nice relaxed flow. Things get a little strange and amorphous now, with held out soft but swelling horn lines, bowed bass, jangling percussion and drums, and darting piano lines. Uh, The others fade out to a rhythmic restart into repeated notes from Conrad. Drums and bass join in to make a new slow procession for a tenor sax solo from Harding. It grows in intensity and volume with modal minor mystery, and Alabuni joins in with lines as well, uh, the horns joining up on a final screaming line to a sudden ending. Now we're going to get an intro, bass intro, to Fraught Hope Blues, and so it's about a minute and a half of acoustic bass with some fun bluesy licks and interesting bending pitch plays going on there. And that leads into the track seven, Fraught Hope Blues. Uh, The trio gets it started with an eight measure intro, a slow plotting beat, and a cycle of three chords that form the hypnotic modal kind of bass of the tune. Elaboni and Harding on alto sax here come in with call and response lines and unison phrases. The melody moves in eight measure sections. Two of them modulate, giving kind of a bluesy trajectory over 40 measures. Elaboni lets some phrases rip <laughs> that pan mm. left and right in your ear, and you think, okay, he's getting ready for a solo. But no, it's Conrad up first on piano with some really heavy modal chords and ringing right-hand phrases, trills, all in a really thick-lined com- uh, solo here. Mm. And Elaboni and Harding exchange phrases next, working up to more intense simultaneous phrases, and then back into a melody section to the end. Track eight, lullaby and good night. You know, Alabani starts it out solo with delicate, longing lullaby-like phrases. The trio joins in lightly, setting a very slow, steady tempo. And Alabani plays a 16-measure melody, 
harmonized sensitively by Harding's sax, really nice phrasing, and swells together. Conrad has a wonderfully delicate and relaxed piano solo with really pretty descending lines into rolling waves and notes that just hang in space. After a little pause, he restarts with rhythmic figures to get a bass drum beat in a five-beat meter going, and Elboni's back starting a solo with soft long notes into more animated figures as the beat builds up. It comes down more softly, the piano rhythm continuing on, and the horns join together on a melody line that's like before but in the new meter and with more rhythmic push. Uh, the trio takes it to a slowed and soft ending. All right, track nine. I really mm. like this one. Azrak. Mm. And now, now we'll be transported to the Middle East, not the Midwest, <laughs> <laughs> with some modal moods here. Rippling waves of piano, that Dumbeck drum and uh, other percussion make a backdrop for improvisation and cries from Alaboni's trumpet. Uh, it comes to a resolve over a low piano note, and as it rings out, Alaboni gets a line picking up into an intense and ominous 7-8 groove. And by the way, <laughs> this is four weeks in a row. We've had mm. a 7-8-meter tune in the episode. What's with this? Everybody's uh, using this It kind of feels like a batting streak or something. Yeah, you know? four weeks mm. in a row. Anyway, we have some more improvisations, and the groove continues until both horns join up on a unison melody. And check it out. It's a way out modal blues, 12-bar blues in 7-8. Uh, they go around again with some more tricky line variations on the second time. And then the tempo just drops away and Harding's alto is left alone over soft bass and piano notes, dancing cymbals for a yearning slow interlude until it kicks back into another bluesy melody run. It thins out again, but with a steady beat from Jensen. And Alaboni and Harding both get some subtle blues choruses to exchange over this new sparse kind of setting. Uh, they turn up the intensity and get into trading phrases, uh, hitting a great dissonant spot on the mm. way, but not shying away from that note. And yeah. suddenly things are soft and dreamy again in a slow kind of uh, four-beat meter with legato horn lines. It's kind of like a little oasis in the middle of this tune. Uh, then back to the groove for more horn exchanges. And Ryan Frost gets the beat out on that dumbbell a little bit into a longer drum solo from Jensen. The bass and piano come back to get things going for a final run through the bluesy melody and variation. But it's not over yet. There's a final funky syncopated coda section to finish it off. A very fun <laughs> and cool tune. Yeah. We're going to end up with the title track, You Are Not Alone. And... It starts out with a sweet little conversation between Alabuni and his daughter, Claire, about uh, telling someone they aren't alone. And the conversation continues uh, on a bit over the slow ballad intro introduction from the trio with very soft piano from Conrad. It has a kind of 6-8 feel to it, but it's mostly in the movement of the melody because the drum work is just very sparse brushing from Jensen. Elaboni starts the melody out solo for the first 10 measures, and then Harding joins in with soft tenor sax harmony. It seems to be like 20 measures of melody with similar halves, and then there's four final measures of gently alternating tones that become more important as the tune goes on. Harding solos next with relaxed phrasing and a full warm tone, and then Alaboni also relaxed, but with some higher reaching lines, uh, creates a really uplifting mood. 
And Harding joins back in, and the horns keep the spirits high with phrases together into those alternating tones that we heard before, which also get the addition of what sounds like both Alunis and Claire's voices added into that. It comes down softly, repeating those figures into slowing piano and bass to a final chord. And that wraps it up. It's a long recording at an hour and 15 minutes, but well worth your investment of time for this musical journey that Alaboni has planned for us. There are funky and fun grooves, tender ballads, bluesy moments, and modal mayhem. Uh, the compositions and arrangements are unique, and they keep you pulled into the music. The solos all suit and serve the songs and moods along the way. Uh, Alaboni has great tone and phrasing the nice mix of restraint and then completely letting loose over certain <laughs> sections uh, when it's called for during the program. Harding has unique personalities and tones on alto and tenor sax and nice flute playing as well. I really liked his searing alto tone and the bass clarinet makes a great different timbre uh, and blend with Alabuni's trumpet. Really nice piano work from Conrad too. Intriguing solos, a nice sense of touch. Quinn's bass work is fine, both on the acoustic and some very funky electric work. And Jensen can play at a whisper with brushes or knock out the heavy grooves depending on the mood. It's a very well-conceived and realized recording. Yeah, it sounds like you liked this a lot, but I really <laughs> loved this. I was like, I, I said that it must be the most compelling jazz album I've heard all year. Oh, wow. And I think this is going to go right on my top 10 because I get to choose the yes. like, 10 jazz, uh, you know, best albums of the year at the end of the, in December. Right. This is on. There has to be. I'd like this so oh. much. It's a pretty long album too, as you said. So there's a lot to hear and enjoy. And it had a lot of, like we were talking about the Debussy worker earlier. This has a lot of things that I like. First of all, the sound quality was great. I love the boogaloo rhythm on the first track, which we don't hear enough of, mm. really, because it's really something from the, the 60s in, in jazz, right? There was plenty of contrast throughout the album. That and some of the structure of the pieces really appealed to my classical sensibilities. We got some jazz flute on Overture, which I love, too, because yeah. I'm a big jazz flute fan. There were modal harmonies, which I, oh, man, I just liked everything. The album really does sound put together in a specific way, too, as right. um, Ayla Boney had mentioned. It doesn't sound like a, just a collection of tracks. Exactly how it's put together, I'd really like to know more about, like wh what he's after here. But something in my mind sensed th that it's put together in the, by the track's like planned nature. There's appealing soloing all the way through. A lot of it's very warm and inviting. And uh, it's a new discovery for me, and I think I'll revisit this often. I definitely want a CD of this album for the collection. Yeah. I haven't seen it written about anywhere yet, but I thought it was definitely one I wanted to talk about. And Yeah, well, well breaking yeah. from uh, adult music. Everybody else has to catch up with us now. <laughs> Gotta this catch is a really up. great record. And yeah. uh, now a few people on all ends of the earth will know about it by next week. So, <laughs> you can, uh, you're going to be the coolest person in your neighborhood, listeners, because you're going to have this album. Absolutely. Introduce it to everybody. And so there you go. A couple of bone sandwiches in both uh, classical yeah. and jazz music. Uh, and lots of variety here. Yeah. It's a really interesting program in uh, both mm. sections this week. Yeah, I thought so too. Uh, so what do we got? Next week we got like a kind of mixed bag though. I'm just going to go back to my uh, you know Baroque modernist. And I don't have a contemporary composer next week because I want to do uh, this new uh, album of uh, Pierre Sankan's um, music and i really want to hear it because i don't really know much about him beyond the uh flute sonatine which 
Okay. We hear often. That's the only piece by him I know. So I want to do this album. Yeah. So I heard your kind of variety program. So I mixed and matched to uh, go with that. So I'm going to have a Israeli uh, guitar organ trio. And I think, uh, what do I have? Venezuelan piano trio that sounded intriguing. And a vocal recording. I thought I'd get that in there because it takes so long for me to find three vocal albums that I like that yeah. <laughs> they get too old. I, so I think a lot of vocal too. It can classical. Like I have a choral one I want to do, but I don't want to do an episode of three choral yeah. albums. It'd be a little too much. Yeah. You know, I like it, but I'm not like that big a fan that I'm going to listen to it all day. So Right. So we'll have to get a uh-huh. variety title for that next week. That'll be episode 119. This one... 118. I think we're going to go with Bone Sandwich. Yeah, Bone We already said we would, so now we have to. We're committed. That. And if you want to know what those recordings are specifically, you want to get a jump listening to them, I'll have the playlist up on Deezer and a link to it on our Facebook page a few hours after this episode goes up. So check that out. Thanks, as always, to Fast Signs of Staten Island for our glowing neon logo. And be sure to check out the same difference to jazz fans, one jazz standard podcast. There'll be a link for that in the description below. All right. And that's it for this week. So keep listening and we'll see you again next week for episode 119. Same difference Two jazz fans, one jazz standard, a review of a single jazz standard through music, history, and stories. And this is AJ. And this is Johnny. If you are a jazz fan and you like jazz standards, bebop, show tunes, ballads, you name it. Yeah, we've got them here. We drop a new show on you every other week, and we take a standard, and we listen to a few different versions of it. Same difference. Come join the fun. Looking forward to seeing you.